Hello, and welcome to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I'm your amiable co-host, Tim, and joined, as always, by... Catherine! That's right, my sister. We are here this week to talk about a true failure, an utter failure, uh, but perhaps one that is so much a failure that it might be worth your time, perhaps the, the truest expression of failure piece. Uh, but we will figure that out because this one is a doozy, uh, and that's because it is 2017's The Snowman, directed by Thomas Alfredson, uh, who I believe might be an Oscar-winning director, <laughs> uh, starring Michael Fassbender and Rebecca Ferguson and J.K. Simmons and lots and lots of other incredible actors in a movie that can only be described as a complete and total mess. It's um, very bad. <laughs> it is so, so bad, but kind of magnetic in its badness. Uh, and and we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Uh, all right. Uh, well, before we get into the movie proper, have you had any time to watch anything this week? Anything going in your eyeballs? Oh, I've been uh, watching movies on my iPad to fall asleep because uh, I got Fun. a media server hooked up so that I can cool. stream things from my computer. And uh, I've been so watching a lot of movies that we talk about. Streamer choice. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, I, I mean, we mentioned Roman Polanski with the uh, the Superman Returns mm -hmm. episode. So I watched Rosemary's Baby to fall asleep, which I don't know what that says about me, but I did. Um, and I do film. really love that film. Yeah, Always fun yeah. to watch. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby is, is a titanic piece of cinema. And incredibly important just in the history of, of horror film know if we would have many of the uh, many of the, the sort of quieter horror now that, that doesn't necessarily have mainstream success but things like Hereditary yeah. Summer, The Babadook, right? They're, they owe a lot to, to Rosemary's Baby and, and the, the work that Polanski did. Again, Polanski serves as a problematic film director with a, a history that certainly leaves him open for criticism uh, but his films are still capable of standing the test of time. I've seen a big resurgence this week of the discussion of Roald Dahl being a, a fairly voracious anti-Semite in his life and, and whether or not that calls his books into question, right? Whether or not they should be shared with children, things of that nature. And, and you know, it's, it's a fairly constant turnaround. I certainly understand people that want to distance themselves from, from people who had onerous views in their lifetime. But at the same time, is... is do those views exist or work their way into something like the BFG, you know, to the point where, you know, third grader or fourth grader can't find something in that book to enjoy anymore? I don't know. That's I always, question. I don't know. I always feel like it's, it's more important to, to have the text and talk about who the person was who wrote it or, you know, see the film, talk about the person who made it and understand you know, the nature of who they were and how that interacts with their work. And I don't think kids are above or, or even below understanding that. Um, you know, that was one thing that interested me as a reader was finding out more about the authors behind the books that I read. You know, I didn't always find out really good things. Um, yeah, no, unfortunately. You know, we all read Ender's Game and then we all looked up Orson Scott Card. 
hard. <laughs> right. Uh, I um, imagine with uh, with Doom getting ready to hit <laughs> and the the size of that, a lot of people are going to dig into. People are going to have Herbert's. some things to say about Frank Herbert. <laughs> yeah, because Frank Herbert had some problematic politics too. Oh, I mean, oh, the, one of the primary subplots of Dune is is a. a fairly positive take on the eugenics movement uh you know so that's that's problematic itself a strong ecological message you know definitely uncommon for the you know the time period but there's some other there's some other shit in dune that doesn't necessarily fly well given our modern political spectrum but again does that invalidate the work does it mean the work needs to be updated i know one major change that the trailer confirmed i guess they, they had an article that come out earlier in the year that confirmed this but they've changed uh kynes dr kynes uh is a female in this version i don't like that <laughs> um well you know it's it, it it's Dune I don't is, mind. is the rare <laughs> yeah it's fine uh you know spoiler they die really <laughs> <Oops>. fast <laughs> um sorry for spoiling a 50 year old book but uh, it's it's just one of those things they felt like the cast had a, a lack of balance. Although I think Dune, as far as having women characters, does better than a lot of science fiction from that period. Uh, but but many of them are in these sort of one dimensional, subservient roles. So they wanted to to have a, a slightly more powerful uh, you know, sort of woman at the center of it, and, and Kynes is a key character. Not necessarily to the first book, um, but you sort of understand, uh, you know, in the book, his role in the film, her role in, in sort of the larger Dune universe as the story unfolds. So that'll be kind of interesting to see. And of course, the, the Chani connection. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that too. But um, yeah, not, not a ton of watching for me this week either. Uh, we, we have kind of been on a Nolan kick. You know, we saw Tenet, and so kind of wanted to, to round out the, the Nolan verse. So we watched The Prestige, which it had been a while for me. I've seen it, you know, several times, obviously, but I hadn't watched it in a bit. And the movie does really hold up. Um, it's I think it drags in the middle act as they're sort of moving to the the final confrontation between these two magicians. Um, you know, none of Nolan's you can't really say any of Christopher Nolan's movies are swift. Right, none of them really move. They all kind of fumble along, and they have a drive to them, but it's a very particular methodical pace that Nolan has. I think a lot of it has to do with his his shot choices. Like Nolan just can't, you know. Like we we we. I don't know if we've talked about it much on here, but I know we personally have talked. You know, like one of the reasons why Spielberg's movies are so swift is he he does lots of of you know sort of medium length single takes. Right. So, you know, he'll have the, the, the characters move across the screen, deliver some dialogue. You see something happen in the background. It makes the characters do something. Something else happens. And there are these very swift things. So you're always kind of moving, right? The, the plot and the characters and the camera work are all kind of in motion. And it allows him to stitch things together much, you know, much more openly, right? He can kind of go in and say, oh, I'm going to plan this two and a half minute sequence and we'll do this two and a half minute sequence and you just kind of watch it and flow along. So Spielberg films always move kind of quickly. For Nolan, one shot equals one action. Right? A character is going to say something. That's a shot. A character is going to grab something. That's a shot. Yeah. A character is going to walk somewhere. That's a shot. 
And it's this extremely methodical, I think a lot of it has to do with Nolan being uh, a, a primarily a still photographer before getting into film. Like you, you frame a shot and then you grab a moment. And I think he still has that very, very methodical shot for action approach. And it works very well. It's very beautiful. You know, very famously Nolan shoots. There is no B camera, right? There is no second unit shooting on a Nolan film. He shoots everything himself. And and so it all hangs together. You know, there's no just one off of like, oh, we need a shot of the guy looking at his watch. So we're just going to have the B unit grab that, you know, after everybody goes home for the day or whatever. Like none of that happens. But man, you can really feel it sometimes. Like just like, dude, just just come on, right? He can pick up the thing while he's talking to the guy. It's <laughs> fine. It's really okay. Uh, you know, so you, you can kind of feel it. I think it's part of why people are starting to get frustrated with Nolan. It's like, I think he, not that a director has to refresh their style periodically. I, I don't think they have to do it that. It would be good if he evolved a bit. But yeah, he's not really evolving as a director. He seems to be doing the same things over and over and over again. Um, and so I feel like it's time for him to, to have, because the prestige, I think, kicked this off for him. Because before the prestige, he was much more kind of variable. Like he wasn't, he, he was very consistent, but he he was still experimental. He was trying things, trying to figure stuff out, especially Memento and even Batman Begins. But post prestige, his movies have all had the same sort of peculiarities. And the prestige, of course, was an adaptation, right? He was bringing someone else's story to life, which he generally doesn't do. And and I think now he needs another one of those. Right. Instead of writing these original screenplays that he just has agonized over for decades, it's time for him to, to grab somebody else's story and try and tell it and, and let that help him mix things up. I agree um, with that. I don't think he will. <laughs> he has no <laughs> reason to. Uh, you know, Tenet has not made a tremendous amount of money, but it's doing fine given the circumstances, I guess. But uh, it's not going to be the blockbuster that like an Inception was. So that may have some effect. Things I don't know, but regardless, it was good to watch it again. Uh, sand it off the rough edges again. I, I I don't think it's a difficult movie to follow, not at all. I think the way that he chooses to deal with the experience of time, because it's not a time travel movie. Like that's the first thing. Like it is a movie that has people moving backwards and forwards in time, but it's not a time travel movie because it's all about the perception of time. It's not about like the actual mechanics of time travel. Um, because and I mentioned it last time, last week, but there's basically like a looper conversation where it's like you just can't think about it too much, right? Just, just don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get sit here all day and talk about that stuff, but we're not going. That's to. generally what I try to do with time travel movies. Just don't think about it. Just yeah, enjoy I mean, it. at this point, <laughs> if you if you really want one that does it, writes the best line of explaining itself and still just back to the future. It's Back to the Future. It's the only one that works. If you're going to get perfect. the better one. But it's but it only works because they establish the box that the time travel takes place in so perfectly, right? You have these these time periods. They go back and forth to those time periods. Nothing else happens. You interact with the same characters. It's just very nicely constructed. But most of the time, time travel, save for Primer. Primer is probably the only other one that works really well. That's a but, good movie. <laughs> but Primer. Uh, which you know dear listeners uh, if you haven't Ooh. seen primer please go find it yes uh shane caruth is straight up genius. Oh, like, pre- people say christopher nolan is a genius shane caruth is straight up a genius um 
and and primer primer and tenant share a lot of the same dna when it comes to how are we going to deal with the realities of time travel uh i did go see uh tenant with a there was a another person there and, and they were, were pretty bewildered by it in the second half like you know they're following it but <sighs> once it got into the stuff it was it was pretty hard for him to keep up uh, understandably so but in any case it's a uh, you know it, it's a good movie uh, i'm anxious to see it again uh in probably home theater environment at this point but that was fun but the prestige was was a really good rewatch i, I really enjoyed it you just forget how much of a presence hugh jackman was in like 2005 i love hugh jackman dude he was exceptional in that movie um you know christian bale's in it you know he's great in it too but yeah. like jackman is just killing it in the prestige like he is swinging for them fences man but this the the star of the show and and i hadn't forgotten this but I, it was really fun to revisit even though he's only on screen for maybe two and a half minutes is david bowie's tesla yeah pitch perfect absolutely incredible casting like none other uh he he's perfect rest in peace you beautiful man oh god just glorious but in any case so that's really about it uh i did buy a giant german box set of eureka uh oh let me know how that goes (laughs) oh man i love eureka it's such a goofy little glorious sci-fi show it's it's wonderful uh mark mother's bought did the theme and it's great and i don't know mark mother's bought had covid <laughs> oh i heard that god, oh my dude. god i'm so glad he's okay dude what a huge loss that would be but in any case it, so we've we've popped in a couple episodes of that but it's really not worth mentioning uh, but we will get a chance to talk about the dune miniseries in this episode Paul Atreides is in the snowman. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway. All right, moving on. So we are here, dear, dear friends, to talk about uh, the snowman. Harry uh, Hole. Harry Hole. <laughs> uh, so some context. Uh, this film was directed by Thomas Alfredson. Uh, Let the right one in. That's uh, right. Norwegian Tinker Taylor's director. soldier spy. Uh, and I Tinker had, Taylor Soldier Spy is a fantastic film. I had Only very high expectations movies. for this, even though you already warned me what it was going to be like. I was like, well, yeah, it can't be to... that bad, can it? I know, yeah. right? Like, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is the perfect example of intricate, small, carefully constructed character story with large mystery at its heart, right? Like, it's... It, if I saw Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and I had this movie on my slate, oh, the snowman, we need a director. That guy, he can do it because Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is excellent. Same with The Right One In, uh, or Let the Right One In. Not the American version. Pay no attention to that one. Uh, although it's not... A, it's not I liked the American. The American version's fine. It, it just makes a few key changes to make it more palatable that I think were a bit... Um, unnecessary but uh so alfredson he's not norwegian the story takes place in norway but he is swedish um has done some fantastic film work again tinker taylor soldier spy if you haven't seen it it's an adaptation of a, of a very very famous jean le Carre novel gary uh, oldman uh gary oldman like at the gary center oldman. of it who's fantastic mark strong um again fantastic casting great casting 
And so this was a movie that got on my radar pretty fast. Uh, one, because of Michael Fassbender, who in 2017 was, you know, doing some really interesting stuff. Obviously, that's some success with the X-Men reboot films. Um, mm. You know, I enjoy watching his work. So I kind of saw some trailers and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. You know, good serial killer thrillers are always a, a great time. Uh, I was not terribly familiar with the series this is based on. Um, so I, I went out and bought a, a Harry Hole novel okay. around that time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sorry. But we're going to have to control ourselves. <laughs> Um, but, uh, not the snowman, but I found another one, uh, called, uh, the red breast. Uh, it's about birds. Um, and it just to, to sort of, you know, get a, a feel for it. And they remind me, I mean, they're, it's very much, I would say one notch above a decent airport read. Right. Uh, uh, well, know, I saw something in, about Alex Cross when I was I was reading up on the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like some Patterson Alex Cross. I really got a, a strong um, Lincoln Rhyme vibe. Jeffrey Deaver. That like, was that I I got that. Yeah. Um, uh, and in the same vein, like Along Came a Spider, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, I mean, we're we're basically talking about the mystery genre. Like, this is, is squarely in the classic Agatha Christie, you know, educated, carefully constructed, he's self-destructive, but, you know, this, this excellent detective dropped into a circumstance, tons of red herrings, use the evidence, piece it all together, figure out who it is, right? It's murder on the Orient Express, but in snow. And, well, in different snow. <laughs> and it it just kind of falls apart. It doesn't even really fit that very, very basic description of a detective story. You know, it, it has all of the pieces of the detective story. It has all of the elements of the story that you would expect, but none of it comes together or works to any end, right? So some additional context, uh, the film came out, was a disaster, Critically, in box office, it made a, a bit of money, but very, very little. And um, Alfredson, in an um, interview, you know, sort of after the fact, a few months later with uh, the Norwegian Broadcasting Service, he, he basically said that they were forced, due to their schedule and their budget, to leave Norway without having actually finished shooting the script. Uh, and he estimated that they left and, and were forced into the, well, I don't want to say forced, but they went into the editing room with basically 10 to 15% of their movie unfilmed. So supposedly there were extensive reshoots with an entirely different crew, right? Most of the people didn't come back. There were editing problems and changes. This, this film was kind of a mess from the production on. And I think that is pretty evident. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty much right from the start. Pretty much. So, uh, like, they're... Yeah, let's just, let's just get into it. So, uh, Rotten Tomato score. 7% on the Rotten <laughs> Tomato score out of 200 reviews. Uh, so, mm -mm. audience score slightly higher at 18% out of only... I know, right? 
uh, out of only 11,000 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, right? A lot of the movies that we've talked about, even though they were sort of critical failures, have been reviewed hundreds of thousands of times on Rotten Tomato. So I don't like to use that as a gauge, but only 12,000 people have even bothered <laughs> to leave a review for this movie. Out of the 12,410 people who have seen it, only that many left a review. <laughs> right. And it, it's it's pretty evident that A, nobody saw this movie, and B, the people who did did not care for it. <laughs> um, so it's it's a strange situation, right? This is probably one of the most interesting situations as a film fan, film buff, that you can find yourself in. Because this is a major studio released, major studio financed, fairly incredible starring cast movie that is a complete and utter disaster. <laughs> right? This isn't a made for Netflix film or a film that got dumped onto Netflix like, you know, the the Sherlock Holmes movie with Yeah, this isn't the Kissing uh, Booth three. <laughs> no, you know, it, it's not that. Like this was I, I would assume this was probably being poised as a franchise because Joe Nesbo, the uh, the writer, he's got dozens of these books, right? Like there are, are pl there's plenty of material to mine in the cinematic universe known as Harry Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't I can't the, it's too much. The whole cinematic. <laughs> It's yeah. This is gonna be rough. If they wanted people to see the movie, they should have said. I mean, I can just picture a trailer, and it's just a blank screen, and the words appear. This is a murder mystery. It stars Harry Hole. It stars Harry Hole. <laughs> because so, I I would have to know. I'm like a murder mystery, huh? Starring Harry Hole. I wonder mm -hmm. if it's a comedy. I'll have to find out. <laughs> yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is a, a really, really great uh, YouTube video uh, by Folding Ideas on the Folding Ideas channel Love him. of focusing on the snowman. Primarily it's editing, which we will certainly talk about because it is a huge issue in this film. Uh, I'm going to refer to that YouTube video a lot. I think he does a great job breaking down some of the major issues in the film. So I certainly want to give him credit for his ideas. I, I have not watched that video yet because I, I wanted to... Uh... <clears throat> I wanted to come at Harry Hole relatively fresh. <laughs> it's always good to, right? I mean, if you're going to come at the Harry Hole. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things that he points out is that, you know, one of the, the problems with this film is that it is set in Norway. The characters are Norwegian. All of them. And none of them are played or very few of them, I should say, are played by Norwegian actors. Some of them are attempting a, Nor a sort of anglicized Norwegian accent to various levels of success. That was very um, strange. <laughs> some of them are not trying at all and just have English accents, which is also funny. Uh, again, an indicator that nobody had time to adequately prepare for their roles in this film. But in the original Norwegian, his name would actually be more properly pronounced as Harry Hula. <laughs> right? And, and, no. <laughs> and, and translated, it should be Hill. 
Right. His name is Harry Hill. If That's a right. more detective-y name. To anglicize the name. <laughs> but even in international releases, because in, in the, the book, in the novel that I have here that was translated for the United States, he's still called Harry Hole. Now, a lot of these books, too, from what I understand, and, and the one that I read bears this up, is that there's sort of black comedies on top of this. Like, like Hole is, is a, a sarcastic, you know, kind of vile, uh, unlikable character, right? He's your sort of typical detective anti-hero, you know, that everybody just kind of puts up with because he gets the job done. And so, I mean, I think that they may have sort of kept that aspect of it, but it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to, to have his name be Harry Hole. <laughs> It just doesn't, it, I, I think you're working against yourself if you're trying to establish him as a really cool character. But whatever, you know, aside from, from those high-level choices, who knows. But so, this is a movie that was, was problematic from the start. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be directed by Martin Scorsese. Scorsese was attached. He wanted to, to make this, this into a thing, which I cannot imagine how different that movie would probably be. Uh, Scorsese backed out uh, other projects. I assume The Irishman is what happened, uh, or, or somewhere along those lines. He got the opportunity to do that, which, of course, was a very long gestating project. And he backed off of this, and they hired Alfredson. And according to Alfredson, uh, he began you know, pre-producing and then was immediately told, we're ready to film. You need to go to Norway. You need to start shooting. And so it sounds like they had a very, very short pre-production schedule, which usually leads to problems so the the basic synopsis of the snowman and our discussion of this will probably make it seem like this movie is more sensible than it actually is <laughs> we had to get help <laughs> because did you did you know that harry hole is is the head of an elite crime unit no is there anything about the film that indicates that he works for the finest until and you, he's the head of the finest group of detectives in Norway. Until you told me that, I thought he was like uh, Joe Don Baker in Mitchell. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Just like a kind of a schlubby, drunk, terrible person. I'm Mitchell. Yeah. Pardon no. me, Mitchell. <laughs> Pardon yeah, me, like, Harry. Um, the book that I read <laughs> opens with uh, Hole being in charge of a detail meant to protect the president of the United States as he's entering Norway for a visit. Huh. And it's heavily implied like the president is also he's like a huge, like addicted to prostitutes and stuff. Like it's very <laughs> strange, but you know, like he is, is a part of an elite group that takes care of very, very high profile stuff and nothing in the movie, nothing makes no. that clear. Like he seems like the most down on his luck, worthless screw up of a police detective ever and he doesn't even really seem to be that successful of a police officer either no no i mean there's a brief conversation between him and his boss that we'll get to where he kind of says you can't keep doing this i can't keep covering for you right implying that you know he, you're good enough i want to protect you but then that didn't go anywhere so that we don't even know what that meant <laughs> so here's the synopsis let's let's go ahead and just lay this out this is the straight from imdb synopsis 
when an elite crime squad's lead detective, Michael Fassbender, investigates, notice they didn't say what his name is. <laughs> they didn't say lead detective Harry Hole. Harry Hole. <laughs> uh, Michael Fassbender investigates the disappearance of a victim on the first snow of winter. He fears an elusive serial killer may be active again. In this film, he has absolutely no knowledge of the previous murders done in this until an hour and a half into it. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, an elusive serial killer may be active again. With the help of a brilliant recruit, Rebecca Ferguson, the cop must connect decades-old cold cases to the brutal new one if he hopes to outwit this unthinkable evil before the next snowfall. Now, you read that synopsis and you're like, all right. That's not bad. That sounds pretty good. Right? A guy who kills when it snows. It might be difficult. You might have a busy schedule, right? You know, it's Norway, so... Snows a lot, but whatever. <laughs> He's going to be very busy this week. He's going to be very busy. He's going to have a lot to do. And that, as a serial killer, you want that. You want that kind of full schedule. You know, you got to keep up. You want to feel like you're making a difference. <laughs> Make your mark, right? <laughs> Excuse me. All right, so uh, some reviews. And, and I didn't pull a ton because they were basically all the same. They basically all said, this movie is a giant fucking mess. No one should see it. But uh, here, here's a couple. A twisty tale of inexplicable red herrings, baffling plot detours, and Chloe 70 is not one, but two identical chicken farmers. (laughs) Uh, Which I think sums things up pretty well. Uh, It's a very twisty film. There are plot threads here that, if properly woven together, would be fairly interesting in terms of, you know, your standard serial killer fiction stuff. But none of it comes to pass. Um, and Chloe Seveny, who gets n- near top billing in this film, is in it for <laughs> like ten minutes <laughs> le- or less, right? Like, it's it's crazy. She's a part uh, of the film for ten minutes. Her screen time is about thirty five seconds. Yeah, I th- I think the the prop severed head that they made of her gets more screen time than actual her. Uh, so such abundant talent, yet what we get on the screen is a snow cone made of horse urine. <laughs> uh, and that was Pete Howell from the Toronto Star, definitely just uh, trying to find as many yellow snow references. As that possible is super creative. Review. That's good. Uh, Nicholas Barber from BBC.com. Take away all of the Scandin Noir signifiers, patterned woolly jumpers, Volvos, frozen fjords, and lots and lots of bridges. <laughs> And the snowman melts away, leaving nothing but a puddle. Again, very, very evocative, right? You can tell the, the, the critics were, they had their, their claws out. They're like, oh man, we get to really tire this one, a new one. <laughs> this movie was really bad. <laughs> this one was real bad. Uh, all right, Guy Lodge from Variety, a production that seems to have been second, third, and fourth guest at every turn and bears the manifold scars and stitches of on the fly rethinking. Uh, which definitely seems to be the case. Uh, you know, Variety reported a little bit before this film came out on the, the constant reshoots and, and back and forth with the studio for this movie, so they would have been aware. One of the only positive reviews that I was able to find, and there were a couple, is from Pete Bradshaw in The Guardian, and the best that he could muster is a serviceable, watchable thriller. Ooh. <laughs> So, you know, damning with faint praise, to I guess. Add the but, word workmanlike in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But I, I will say my experience watching it the first time and then subsequent viewings, because I've actually gone, I've watched it about four times now. <laughs> um, I know, I'm, I'm crazy, but I, I would agree. Like, there's enough moving in the engine underneath underneath all the garbage that there is a decent film to be found here, but they just didn't finish it. It's just incomplete. And yeah, it, it feels like like a like a scene missing sort of affair where I really do feel like from the start to the end of the film that there are just genuinely parts that I'm not seeing that should yes. have been there. <laughs> yes, and, and the film struggles to link scenes together as a result. Uh, I mean, we'll get there, but there's there's straight up a scene where Harry gets an emergency phone call while at a concert with a kid who may or may not be his biological son. The call comes in on the kid's phone, right? Not Harry's phone, the kid's phone. Kid says, you've got a call. Harry takes the call. It's Rebecca Ferguson's character, the, the brilliant young recruit, saying there's been a murder or a call about a murder. We need to go. They leave the concert. She shows up, and then there is an off dialogue. There is an off-screen piece of dialogue that says, "I'm tired. We'll go in the morning." <laughs> and then an unconnected shot of Harry in his underwear at his apartment, holding a pill bottle. And then a scene of them driving to the location the next morning. That was. My overall impression of this film was I thought I was having a stroke because yeah, there's it, just pieces that are gone, right? Just things kept happening. And I'm like, wait, where are we? What is, what is going on? There are people talking. What are they talking about now? Like, who is anybody? How do they relate to each other? The film just doesn't slow down and show or explain any of it. No. It's a very, it's a very unique experience. Um, but I mean, like that, that scene of them, well, obviously the, sh the only shot they had of a car driving in close to the right area that they needed to go was in the daytime, right? They didn't have a nighttime driving shot, so they couldn't go to the location at night. But the only, they didn't have any of the scenes in between to get them to morning or to, or between characters talking. To say, oh, we're going to this place in the morning. They didn't have any of that stuff. So they have a single 80-yard off-screen line delivered by Michael Fassbender because there's <laughs> no physical shot of him delivering this line to anyone. Another interstitial shot, perhaps shot for something else, because Harry, there, there is a thing about him getting prescriptions um, and, and trying to get like sleep aids because he doesn't sleep and drinks too much. And so you know if he does fall asleep, it's just because he's drunk. And so there is, and so it's a scene of him holding this pill bottle, and then they're just immediately driving the next morning, and then we get a ton more eighty-yard line lines as they explain where they're going. Like it is, it is a absolutely constructed in the editing room sequence, right? Where there's just not enough filmed footage to do what they need to do on screen to get the characters from point A to point B. And unfortunately, that's not the only sequence like that at all. No. So, uh, you know, we could belabor the point, but let's let's just get into this thing because it is something else. I, I will say, you know, Alfredson is and one of the reasons probably why this movie is still moderately watchable is that Alfredson is a very capable director. Like the film looks OK, 
Although, and this is something that the Folding Ideas channel pointed out, the color grading on the trailer versus the color grading in the film is wildly different. Like, wildly different. Um, the, trailer sh the, the trailer has uh, a ton more blue in the color grade. Like, they've, they've scaled up the blue, pulled down some of the, the sort of, like, mid-tones. Now, now, trailers get color graded early all the time. Right, so it is not weird for a trailer to have a different visual look than the final film. That's a, that's not weird at all. <clears throat> but this one doesn't feel like that. And one of the things the Folding Ideas channel had is that this film was shot on uh, Ari Alexa's uh, Ari Alexa cameras, right? It's a digital camera. It's a very nice digital camera. But the raw image out of an Ari Alexa looks like this movie. As in, we didn't color grade the film. It looks fine. <laughs> Which probably means we forgot to color grade the film <laughs> and then it was too late or too expensive to go back and color grade. <clears throat> Which is why a lot of this movie, or potentially why, I don't know, Potentially why this movie, even though it is, it is shot well, looks incredibly flat. Yeah. It right? doesn't not, it, it doesn't have an identity at all. Like I I was talking about this yesterday, um, or the day before yesterday. It's most films, you know, have like a colorway. And this just doesn't. And even to the point where it seems to change from scene to scene. And if they didn't put any kind of of color grading in the final product then that makes sense it's just responding to the light of the scene <clears throat> but it it kind of leaves you just not feeling any sort of way about the movie um most most of the directors that i love and and what i would have thought from a director like this is that they would have this kind of vibe that carries through the film because i felt like let the right one in had a very very strong look sure. um and i was expecting to see that in this movie and i just didn't and i feel like the color is a huge part to blame it seems drained right there's not a lot of con i mean there's good contrast but there's not a lot of, of depth to the image nor is there a lot of of life right it's just very flat and so our first couple of shots of the film are, are large Norwegian landscapes, which are beautiful, right? Covered mm -hmm. in snow. Uh, this film is, is tied to the weather, so it makes a ton of sense that we would start in these massive, you know, sort of snows. But right off the bat, you can tell that something is wrong. Um, there's a snowplow coming down the road. There's a car following it. And then the first shot of the movie is a kid looking out a window we go to reverse shot of kids see the wind out the window from his perspective he sees the car approaching completely 80 yard lines hey so and so's coming mom he's here mom he's here 80 yard line from mom oh that's not possible it's a, it's not tuesday right uh, i think we might see the mom she's like laying in bed or something so we might see her deliver that line but everything else 80 yard then Guy gets out of car. Like, mom is laying in bed smoking a cigarette. Looks like she's still in her nightgown. Guy gets out of car. He's walking towards the house with, like, a bag and some other shit. 
and mom is is out of the bed fixing her hair with like a wooly sweater on yeah right like not enough time has elapsed for any of those things to take place but yet they are so mom comes downstairs she's leaving her bedroom she immediately is on the stairs that too seems quick um you know it's it's like in editing you can trust that your audience is going to see a character going from point a to point b and then another shot of moving from point a to point b and they'll stitch them together and say oh that's fine but you can't push too far right you can't have a character like exiting a doorway you know point a to point b and then cut to them entering another doorway point a to point b because it's like well what happened in between that where are they right and you've confused your audience and there's a lot of stuff like that in this movie where characters move and then they we see them moving and then we get a cut and we would normally expect to see another interstitial shot of them like coming around a corner or going down some steps and that all is skipped and they're yeah. just like nope i'm in the car now there's and no so, there's no range of motion to any of the character movement on the screen it's very locked down right they just again it just feels like they didn't have coverage right they just didn't get those shots but as far as the action of the scene, uh, this person, uh, who we don't really know who these people are, uh, other than boy, mother, strange man who has brought them supplies, right? Food, propane, for, for warmth. And then they're sitting at the table, and he's quizzing the boy about Norwegian history. And and he seems perturbed that the boy doesn't know more than he does. So he tells the mother, you need to, uh, to help him more. And then she he belts her across the face violently. Uh, she was, again, she's playing with coffee beans on the table. Yeah. I, I don't know if these are supposed to be like, I mean, the guy's tossing them at, at the kid, I think, you know, as like a punishment when he gets wrong answers or something, but... Again, the, it's never really explained why the coffee beans are there or what their important is, import is. But uh, they get spilled. And again, in another scene that just feels very like, where are the pieces? The mother gets knocked down. The coffee beans go to the floor. The little boy goes after her. You, you think to help her, but he doesn't. Instead, he picks up the coffee beans and takes them and goes outside <laughs> to play in the snow while being inappropriately dressed to do so. I think that was the first terrible face that I made. Yeah, because it, it, it just it's right at the beginning, right? I mean, we're moments into the film. So he goes outside, he builds a snowman. Wah, wah, wah. Right? Dun, 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 dun. We're, we're already there. <laughs> right? He goes outside, he builds a snowman. He hears strange noises coming from inside, which seems impossible because the wind is really a whipping out there. And he goes inside, and he he sees the after effects of this man, you know, having relations with his mother. His mother seems mortified that the boy sees this. When it seems like this is a fairly regular thing, I, I'm I'm surprised that it's the first time, or that he would be surprised because the boy's to me. I, this could be wrong, but the boy looks like twelve to me. Yeah. Um. You know, it's not like he's he's eight or something. Uh. But the mother says, you know, I'm going to tell your wife about um, about the boy, and you're going to have to acknowledge him. So, illegitimate child, this guy's like some kind of sheriff or, or local law enforcement or something, so he's got 
a modicum of power, even though he drives a shitty Volkswagen Rabbit. Yeah, I'll drive shitty Volkswagens. It's no and <laughs> and so he he just leaves and says, "I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm just going to leave you. I'm not going to ever come back." And the mother's like, "No, you can't," even though she literally just tried to like hold him over a barrel and make him acknowledge them. And and now she's like, "No, don't leave us." <laughs> <laughs> a little late for that. You didn't seem that worried about it just a minute ago. But then she runs to the house. She runs to the side of the house. And apparently they have a car. Now, the fact that this guy has been bringing them supplies yeah. would kind of indicate to me that they're sort of trapped out <clears> here, <throat> right? The, the, the snowplow had to like clear the way for him to get to the house in the first place. Yeah. We never see the car attached to the house. Right, she runs to the uh, or from the camera. She runs to the right side of the house to get the car. But we saw a huge wide shot of the house coming in, and there is no car there. Wow. Right, there, there's there's no car next to the house at all. But they have a car, and they you can say that like they should have put a want. car there or something. Well, you know, you kind of think. <laughs> That if you're going to have your characters run to to frame right, and then your next immediate shot is a pullback from a rear view mirror that then reveals that they're in, I'm not going to say it's a nice Volvo, but it's a running Volvo. <laughs> you might want to establish that they have such a vehicle at their disposal. Or maybe. I, I, who knows? I don't know. It seems like maybe something you'd want to do if you were making a movie just to establish that this is going to happen because a major plot thing happens inside that car here in just a sec, right? So the the shot occurs at uh, 58 seconds into the film. The house stands alone in a field next to a lake and there is no garage. There is nothing mm-hmm. to the right of the house where she eventually runs and then supposedly gets into a car. Uh, there's nothing there <laughs> at all. And so they get in the car. Uh, they're chasing the guy. Uh, he he doesn't escape necessarily, but they the mother just decides that it's time to drive onto. I'm gonna go ahead and call it a fjord just because I want to say <laughs> fjord. Uh, it's probably not. It's probably just a lake. <laughs> but she drives onto the the fjord, the, the frozen <laughs> lake, and uh, the kid pulls the handbrake. Got some sweet drift action. They get a sweet drift out of it, and the mother just doesn't get out of the car. <laughs> she has the most hilarious look on her face, and she dies. Yeah, she doesn't get out of the car. Um, she just kind of stares at the boy who's <laughs> trying to save her. The ice collapses in a very interesting way. Uh, I've never really seen ice collapse yeah. in stages. Uh, generally, it seems to take, you know, if, if the ice does crack, it's, it's going to go pretty quick uh, but this one just kind of cracks gently and then she just kind of rolls back into the water and the car fills with water <laughs> and she dies and that's the opening to the snowman uh the boy you know lets out a, a whale off camera <laughs> again uh that his mother is dead and and the, the film you know ostensibly begins uh we get a really really straightforward credits title sequence yes like white text on black 
almost as if I'm just going to throw this out there as if somebody did it as a placeholder, like, Hey, don't forget titles go here. Well, they're not even very well arranged. <clears throat> they're, they're not remarkable no in any way. You know, I, I, I admire simplicity. I mean, a, a white title on a black, black background is, is fine. It works, but this doesn't feel like that. It feels more like there were, you know, <laughs> there was a, a little thing in the corner that said shot missing. And, this, and then just somebody erased that. <laughs> this felt like uh, I know he's like he's Swedish, so this is this is kind of an easy easy shot. Um, it felt like an IKEA version of like Criminal Minds, a little mm. bit, or like David Fincher's sure. Criminal yeah. Minds, it, this, featuring a IKEA. This, a lot of this movie feels like aping David Fincher. It mm. really does, and and not without skill but without none of the intricacy of planning that you can expect from a Fincher film. It turns out making movies like that is really difficult. (laughs) Making mysteries in general is really hard. It is hard to keep your audience on their toes, to give them the clues that they need, but not enough clues that they can solve it and, and check out of the film 45 minutes in. So... You know, just to keep moving, that's our opening. It it is it is apropos of nothing. No characters are named. I think the sheriff they say like Mister So and So is here, but that has no bearing on anything. And and we awaken in a drunken stupor with our hero. I love that well, he's in like a playground house when we meet him. Yep, his our the first shot of our our hero. Right, this is almost one of those MST three K. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is, is he is inside a a play shack at a what I, I believe is a fairly famous park in in Norway because it's it's got all those uh, nude statues, right? The sort of layered statues. Uh, it's a very famous park. All those statues were donated by a by a famous Norwegian sculptor, and so he's in that park and he's just sleeping. I mean, he, it might as well be a park bench. Like, that's basically what it is. Oh, and, and don't forget, Toby Jones also gets top billing in this film. And he is in this movie for <laughs> two scenes. And in one of those scenes, he only says the name of Val Kilmer's character before the scene is over. <laughs> I think Toby Jones may have five or six words that he speaks in this film, and he is like seventh build in this movie. Uh, so just, mm, man, we are we are firing on all cylinders. Uh, so we get a lot of really gorgeous looking shots of that statuary. Uh, you know, nice. There, there is a tremendous amount of like sliding dolly camera shots in this movie. Like, I, I would say, I don't, I don't want to put a percentage, but I'm gonna say like forty percent of the shots in this movie are are pan left to right or right to left dolly shots. Slow dolly shots. Just constantly, everywhere. Usually posted opposite of each other. Almost feels like Alfredson said, um, please go to location X, lay out the dolly track, and then just get me all of this footage of you know sliding left to right and then we'll figure out what to do with it later. Like, it just really feels that way. Like, you know, in watching these opening titles, every single shot 
is Dolly sliding left to right, right to left, left to right, right to left, left to right, right to left. It's 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 nearly comical in its consistency. And so again, from a story standpoint, Harry Hole wakes up, he is horrifically drunk, he's fallen asleep on a basically a park bench. He's woken up by the sounds of laughing children. He apologizes to all of the mothers who are staring him down and then goes to the store and returns home. There's a couple, I mean, again, there's a couple of interesting shots. There's like a, a bird's eye view as he's going up the stairs to his apartment. That's okay. But then he enters his apartment and his apartment has someone in it. Um, and in this case, it is a, a mold repair technician. Uh, I don't know if he's ever been named. I think he's just called Mold Repair Guy. <laughs> yeah, um, Mold Man. <laughs> but f- for some reason, uh, so again, all we've seen of our, our hero at this point is that he's woken up drunk in a park. He waddles his way home, smoking a cigarette, walks in, and there's a mold guy there who's removing what he said is is horrifically toxic mold that is right behind his bed and and could very well kill him. And then we never speak of it again. And it is never spoken <laughs> of again. Uh, so, but Harry's first act when he realizes there's someone in his house is he grabs a gun that he has hidden in his record collection. Because <laughs> that's where I would keep my weaponry, right? Oh. So he reaches into his record collection, pulls a gun out, and then... He's holding it, and the guy startles him, and he turns, and he immediately shoots and nearly kills the guy, but blows like a record off the shelf with That's his shot. That's what you do. And the guy does, apparently doesn't hear it, I guess, because he's listening to music, <laughs> which that's another thing in this movie. There's tons of people listening to the weirdest, lamest music this that I've ever heard. soundtrack was so strange. It's weird. Every like the popcorn song that kept playing. What the hell? What it reminded me. Okay, so do you watch? Have you watched much Rick and Morty? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you remember the episode where they're in the simulation and Jerry's got his own thing, <laughs> and he turns on the radio and it's just like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> and he's like, and he asks what it is, and he's like, oh, it's human music, <laughs> and, and he's like, doo, 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 and he's like, hmm, I like it. <laughs> That's the music in this movie. <laughs> you know, there's like a score and, and some some stuff. But like whenever like music is supposed to be playing, it's just that. There and were also so weird. a lot of dramatic orchestral stabs at awkward times. Oh, you mean like... Where the music would just swell and then why? What? Yeah. Should I be worried? Because I'm not. Well, there's, there's one that stood out to me where they're... So, okay, this movie's called The Snowman. The killer, if you haven't figured it out, he builds snowman, yeah. snowmen at his victims' you know, graves mm. as, as a, a thing. It's supposed to be childlike, whatever. It's not intimidating at all. No. There's nothing intimidating about it. <laughs> it is because not effective. The snowmen, the snowmen are, are stumpy and short, and the <laughs> only thing that makes them scary <laughs> is that they have either a flat face or a frowny face. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a snowman. But it's a snowman with a frowny face, so oh no. And there's one shot where it's a snowman and the characters are walking by it and it's got a normal face. 
<laughs> but then the camera pans around the snowman and you see on the back side of it it has a frowny face and and when it does that the score just goes like <laughs> like it's some sort of you know incredible revelation that it's a it's the frowny face snowman on the back of the happy face snowman you thought and they it, were happy but the snowman was not happy and it and again, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like that that is obviously trying to like maintain tension, but it just doesn't work. But in any case, so so just to to recap, we've met Harry Hole. He is blind, stinking drunk on a park bench, meanders his way home while smoking, and then immediately almost murders an innocent bystander who is attempting <laughs> to clean his apartment of violently toxic mold. That is the first five minutes of this movie. So as as far as establishing Harry as a bad person, box hmm. is checked. Yeah. Right? We got it. Uh, so the, the mold repair guy is, uh, oh, I forget his name, it's Alex something. Uh, Alec Newman. But, uh, Alec Newman. But he is the one who played uh, Paul Atreides in the now infamous Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries. Yeah. <sighs> Among other things, he's had a pretty decent career. But So he shows up as the mold repair technician. Uh, he's wearing a tremendous amount of eyeliner, so I believe he's supposed to be a part of some sort of underground group in in Norway. I, I don't know. We see the him eyeliner later, like, guys. <laughs> we see him later like standing outside a club or something, so I think we're supposed to think that he's you know some kind of dude like that. I don't know. A cool guy? He's a cool guy. <clears throat> And then we get some very awkwardly inserted B shots of like Michael Fassbender picking up a picture of Oleg, his maybe is, maybe isn't son, and uh, soon to meet uh, Charlotte Gainsborough as Raquel. And it's again, it's they're awkwardly inserted. He is standing a good ten to fifteen feet away from where that fell off the shelf. And we just see him pick it up and put it back on the shelf without ever moving in that location. And then we are shown a pair of uh, concert tickets. Concert, yeah, because that becomes a thing later. Where it says, Happy Birthday, Oleg, from Harry. A note that he wrote and then left on concert tickets sitting on his couch that he has now just rediscovered and forgot <laughs> existed. So he rediscovered yeah. both the tickets and the couch <laughs> and the couch. Uh, so then we're, we're quickly introduced to Charlotte Gainsborough, uh, Gainsborough, who is a art dealer of some kind. Again, uh, she's, she's mostly just doing her, her, her sort of English French accent. Uh, no real attempts to, <laughs> to be Norwegian, even though her name is Raquel Fauke, uh, which is definitely Norwegian. <clears throat> Uh, but then we we almost immediately like Harry is awkwardly staring at her out uh, through the window, and then we get another very weird cut to the police station. Again, apropos of nothing, Harry Harry walks away from Raquel after just staring at her in the window. And then we cut to the Oslo Police Department, where the Oslo police are being briefed on a new 
file logging system that they're going to start using to accurately track investigative data and I liked how old and shitty the tablets looked. Yeah, everything looks awful. They've, I mean, that looks like something we would actually give government employees to do their jobs. Yeah, and I don't doubt that the, I don't doubt that this was a plot point in the book, that because part of the the thing that's running through here is that they're trying to centralize all of the crime in Norway, get it into a central database so that everybody can access everything. Because this case that Harry's about to be pulled into against his will is is a cold case. It's an old case. And everybody's forgotten about it. Nobody's thinking about it anymore. And and so I think one of the ideas that's running through the story is that if you could you know bring all of this information together, you would be more likely to solve these kinds of cases. But surprise, surprise, that goes nowhere. Yeah. Uh, literally nowhere (laughs) there's like this big thing about making sure that they like put their fingerprints on it correctly so that they they can uh you know log in properly and get the data that they need and it, it just is i think there's also a little bit of like old school versus new school because rebecca ferguson wants to use that system to go through files and harry's like who cares like don't even waste your time and and so like Harry's trying to be very old school and she's trying to use all this new technology that he doesn't want anything to do with. Again, it's it's interesting potential plot threads that just never land. If they are mentioned again ever, it's briefly and then they just go away. But uh Harry that's this is the scene where Harry gets approached by his uh boss who says, you know, I can only cover for you so much, and Harry's like, uh, you know, uncle died or something and that's why i've been drunk and absent for a couple of weeks sorry about that but he gets his first letter and so these letters are hilarious uh, i love them i i absolutely love them the entire marketing campaign for this film was built around these letters uh the poster for the film the one that i pulled to put in my notes for this simply says, Mr. Police, you could have saved her. I gave you the clues. And then a a bad drawing of a snowman. That's the poster (laughs) for this movie. (laughs) It's not a picture of Michael Fassbender. It's not the the three stacked heads of J.K. Simmons and Rebecca Ferguson and Michael Fassbender with, you know, a blood-stained floor. Nope, it's a bad drawing of a snowman with Mr. Police, you could have saved her, badly written on it in horrible handwriting. (sighs) Ah. And and so he gets the first letter, and the letter is, you know, uh, you're... Okay, I can't even... I, I, oh my god, my brain. It hurts about it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he gets a letter in his mail that apparently he has not checked in the police office for however long he's been gone. Weeks, whatever. And there is a postmarked letter. Postmarked. No return address. But it was mailed. That says, Mr. Police, you could freeze to death that way. Okay? Mr. Police, you could freeze to death that way. So what is that referring to, dear sister? You could freeze to death that way. Well. How did the film open? It went, well, with some freezing, some cold. Our guy in the cold. He woke up in the cold. In the cold. And he was freezing. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? And then... He walked across the park. And he got a letter about it. He went, he went home. 
he left his home, went and stared awkwardly at his ex-girlfriend, and then came to work. And this guy had the time to watch him sleep in the park, write a letter about it, draw a shitty snowman, put it in an envelope, and get it through the Norwegian mail system. That is why you should always carry stamps. In under three hours. (laughs) Right? I could understand if it didn't have any postage on it. If it didn't have any postage on it. It would just mean he's following him. It would mean that he followed him and he lo- he dropped this into his mail knowing that he would eventually check it. But it's been post. It was mailed. <laughs> he got it later that day. Like, not even that later that day. Like, an hour later that day. He's only been up for, like, two and a half hours. Or at least there's nothing in the film. I mean, has it been a week? Did he wake up in the park, go home, and fall asleep in his mold-ridden apartment? And that's the worst part is you don't know. You're not actually sure what kind of timeline you're dealing with. Like, you can find out after the film. It is bewildering. (laughs) But this is where he says, while you were sleeping. Okay, so while you were sleeping this morning, I was watching Mummy. By the time you read this, I will have built her a shitty drawing of a snowman. (laughs) Right? That is the letter that he receives, apropos of nothing. Okay, so let's just break down the timeline. He was sleeping in the park. While he was sleeping in the park, or during that time frame, so eight hours ago-ish, he says, I was watching Mummy. I was watching my mom. And by the time you read this, at 9 a.m.-ish, I will have built her a snowman, which implies that she'll be dead. Right, the snowman means that he's he's killed them. And, um... How? <laughs> how? I... How? He's very busy, I guess. He's a very, he's a very busy, busy snow guy. Yeah. And, so and yet after still makes it, time to draw all those snowmen. He I does. I how he does I it. mean, he doesn't... They don't take much time. They're very simple. No. But... <laughs> But then we get a shot in the middle. Okay, so Harry then, like, he reads the letter and he's like, hmm, weird. And he looks up and, like, you know, two camera left. And then we just get an overhead shot of a person in a blue coat. It's not a long shot. We don't see him complete the snowman. But we see him gather up snow like he's making a snowman. And then we immediately cut to a shot of Harry meeting Raquel after she's gotten off work. And Just in again, case you didn't know where you were. <laughs> right. So who was building the snowman? Why did we see the snowman being built? Was it the killer? Probably. Why were we shown it? Don't know. Not important. We were. Not important. <laughs> Moving on. Now, again, we might want to say, oh, a lot, of, a lot more time has passed than what we're being shown. It's been a couple of days or something. But yeah, but then show us that. <laughs> but we know it's not because when Raquel shows up, she says, hey, you made my clients go away. Implying that the clients that he made go away were earlier that day and she lost a sale because he was being creepy in the window earlier <laughs> that day. <laughs> that was creepy. Yes, very creepy. And so they're walking and talking. Uh, again, there's a son named Oleg that might be Harry's, might not be Harry's. Doesn't matter. No one cares. It does, means nothing to the film. Doesn't matter. They walk through, you know, 
Oslo, uh, beautiful churches, beautiful whatever. And they have some discussions. There's a weirdly long shot of him handing her keys. And then there's like a, there's like a hockey player on the keys. And it just lingers for this really long time. And we don't know why. It's very Those weird. And then keys they just show up part. a few times. There's a lot shots. of like keys changing hands. I think it's supposed to indicate that she still has keys to Harry's apartment. Like he still wants her to have keys to get into his place. If if anything is needed, which which does sort of. But like, why show us the keys? Later. You know, show us the relationship, and we'll assume that he's got. They've got keys. Exactly. You know? It's it's a very strange choice. So. Then we see Harry staring in a bar and, and you know what could have been a cool shot like it's a ref- it's his face reflected on a bunch of other people and and you know he wants to go inside but maybe he's not going to go inside and then we we dolly left <laughs> we just see him playing as, in the gutter because is. because he he went inside and he got blind strength stinking drunk again even though he, he knows the consequences <laughs> All right, so now we get our first kill, right? Which this there were actually a few reviews that I read that said this film was ridiculously violent, which I just do not uh, understand not at all. Really. I mean, there's some some moments, I suppose, but in general, no. So then we follow a, a woman who is leaving. I guess it's her job. It looks. It seems like it's her job. And then she's she's being followed by a man in a red uh, Volvo. Turns on the lights, he follows her. And then we're we're sort of briefly treated to a, a a little window into this you know this this about to be victim's life. Uh, she texts her young daughter who says I'm going to be she says I'm going to be late but I miss you, um, and you know there there is a in, in many European countries there is there are very very strict laws about texting and driving. And so she pulls over to the side of the road to answer her daughter's text and notices that the red Volvo pulls off behind her. And so she puts on her hazard lights, tells him to pass, and and he kind of doesn't for a long time. Uh, But eventually kind of moves on. And then she answers the text and continues home. And, you know, it's, it's a... This is conventionally edited. There's nothing super strange about it. it. It's go for a film that has moved so swiftly up until this point like we've really just had a bunch of like just crap happen we spend a, a ridiculous amount of time with these people um this we find out this woman and her husband are kind of estranged they're having problems with their relationship she was supposed to be home early so that he could leave to go do something <laughs> and she didn't show up and so now he's pissed off about it and you know you can tell there's there's strain in the relationship but then we get shots of her and the daughter going to bed and uh oh, there was and, and a lot were, going on yeah it's just we get a lot of information about these people and i know it's because we're trying to build you know sympathy to, to have some understanding of like we didn't need any the of the loss but it really mean it amounts to nothing in the film uh oh, oh but of course the key point the, the absolutely unmissable thing is that there was a snowman in front <gasps> of their house oh shit a snowman but the snowman, instead of facing the road, 
his face. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Right, he's looking in the window instead of looking out. And so the snowman watches, which again ties back to the, the scene at the beginning. And there's another, the first, like, I guess, great, we'll call him the snowman stinger. <laughs> like, we zoom out the window a little bit and we see just the top of this, like, goofily constructed snowman <laughs> peeking over the top of the hedges and be like, I'm a snowman. And then, and the, the score just goes like, it just makes no sense dude but so the mom goes uh, you know the mom and the daughter go to bed and then uh, a snowball hits her window so she goes to investigate and that's the last we see of of the family uh, in that state so hard cut after the snowball hits the window and the snowman sting back to the oslo police department and this time we are tracking uh, rebecca ferguson who has appeared in the film so Rebecca Ferguson is is the second lead of this movie. Like she is with Fassbender, supposed to be the the second you know sort of main detective character. Uh, she plays a character named Katrine Bratt, and she has just moved to Oslo from a more rural department, uh, Bergen, I think she says. Well, although Bergen's not really that rural, but uh, so she's moved to Oslo, and uh, you know I guess is attached to Harry's unit. Even though he has no knowledge of her presence, oh, excuse me, uh, has no knowledge of her presence. So they drink some coffee together. They they share a little bit about each other. And again, because the movie needs to establish that Harry's not a complete and total fucking loser, <laughs> because that is the only thing that we have seen out of him so far, <laughs> is that he is worthless and completely completely useless i mean he he works as a police officer but we've only seen him sleep smoke and get out of work and drink so and drink yes and so she says oh we studied your cases at the academy right (laughs) like that'll do (laughs) this'll do he's great and his cases are famous and so he's just kind of like you know drifting along we get this little interstitial scene. Harry notices, and, and we're shown, that she has confidential files just sticking out of her bag. Something that anybody who did anything as a police detective would know is a bad idea. But so she's just got these confidential files. He notices and, and kind of lets it slide. Cut back to little girl with mom. Little girl wakes up. Mom is gone. Door is open. House is freezing. Again, some musical stingers here, like there's something wrong, but the girl never really ever seems in danger. Um, she sees the snowman, and now it has a scarf around its neck. Seemingly, <laughs> seemingly the scarf that has that her mom had on. Um, so again, we're supposed to be scared. There's another snowman stinger, the you know creepy snowman thing. We cut back immediately to the police department. So this intercutting is very strange. And at the it's police disorienting. At the police department, where apparently no one does any work, no. there's a, a couple of people playing ping pong. Harry is sitting at a desk, staring at something. But I, I wanted to point out one other thing. Inside the police station, in this, again, dolly shot from right to left, 
as we see these people playing ping pong, all of the interior lights are on and it's dark. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Like yeah. it is it is visibly dark. And Harry is sitting there with a pen staring at something? Nothing? It, just um, something. But then Rebecca Ferguson's character in a dolly shot panning left to right walks out of the police department and Harry Hole follows her and makes a driving motion. He's like, he's like, does like the two year old, like go for a drive. <laughs> and, 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 and then we find out that Harry doesn't own a car. Right. So in the, the Nesbo book that I read, uh, Harry was struggling with the fact that he had failed his firearms test for the first time. And he was really, he, he needed to go and recertify, which was apparently a no big deal, but he had all this anxiety about it. And so like, I think it's, it's a little bit of that. Like Harry is, again, such a colossal screw up as a person that he can't have a license because he's a drunk and he can't have his, his gun because he's a drunk. And so there, again, I think there's like supposed to be some kind of subplot here, but it, it goes nowhere. So they've been called in on this case for some reason. It seems more like Rebecca Ferguson is looking for cases involving the disappearance of, of women coinciding with a snowfall, right? So we, pretty much immediately see that she's got some kind of inside scoop about these these cases. So Harry decides to wait in the car. He's not really interested in being involved in this, this particular case, but he just wants to kind of be around. But he starts piecing together pretty quickly that Ferguson's character has ulterior motives in being involved in the group. Uh, he looks through the confidential files, finds... What was her name? Layla? Layla Asin. And he finds a file about this Layla Asin uh, going missing. And so then we get a flashback. <laughs> so I want you to tell me why does Harry looking down at a file and seeing the name of a person and a headshot of an individual trigger this flashback? I what do don't you think? know. I just nope. don't know. It makes no sense. Who's remembering this? Is Harry reading the file and finding out what happens? Well, that's not possible because the thing that we are shown is a thing that wasn't in the file. All right. It just, it does, it makes no sense. There's no connective tissue between that scene and this scene, but by God, here we are. And to make it even better, it's the first scene in the film featuring Val <laughs> at Val last Kilmer, Val Kilmer as Gert Rafto that's his name and we quickly find out that this Leila Asen who is, is supposedly related to uh, JK, I guess she's related to J.K. Simmons character somehow I, again I, the connective tissue between these, these events is just not working but one of the men involved in with this woman is friends with Val Kilmer's detective character. And this is nine years ago, right? So we, this is like a decade prior. And he, he wants help to try and find this, this missing woman. All right. So context, uh, Val Kilmer has had a severe, uh, some severe issues with, throat cancer mm -hmm. and that have left him 
for a long period of time, he was unable to speak. Uh, apparently, that has improved, thankfully. But during the filming of this film, he could barely talk above a whisper. So, seemingly, every... Every single line that Val Kilmer has is dubbed. All yeah. of them. Dubbed by someone who is definitely not Val Kilmer and someone who is not matching the mouth movements that Val <laughs> Kilmer was capable of making. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Like, there are lots of examples. Uh, we, you know, we watched Bill and Ted 3 not too long ago, and, and there is actually a really egregious... ADR not matching vocal, you know, mouth movements in that, right? Which, you know, it happens. It's it's not the end of the world. Like, you can definitely ADR a line in. You most commonly see it when you've got, like, an over-the-shoulder shot and you can just kind of see the side of somebody's face and they'll, like, ADR a line in that's not even close. And you can tell, like, the jaw's not moving in sequence. But it's, it's enough, you know, you're just like, eh, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. But in this one, like, it's straight up. The camera is dead on Val Kilmer's face, and he is saying things, and the ADR <laughs> is not matching them at all. And so he... All right, so just for, you know, the story's sake, Gert Rafto, who is another disgraced sort of nobody believes him, he's drunk police detective is pulled in by a friend who is related or somehow involved with this woman to try and find her. And he's like, I've been suspended. I, you know, we get a lot of like, <laughs> we get a lot of, of, you know, standard. I need to establish who I am and what I'm doing dialogue. Right. I've been suspended. No one believes me. Right. And, and to establish that he's sort of on the outs. And then, uh, and then the flashback ends and Harry Hole closes a, he closes a magazine that had a picture of JK Simmons character and the Lila Austin character. And the, the flashback is over. Yeah. Even though none of the information that he just consumed, we learned nothing <laughs> would have given none of the information that he just consumed is justified us seeing that scene. Number one, right? Yeah. Like he did not get, that was a personal conversation between friends by a police detective on the outs with his his police department so he wouldn't have never he would have never written any of that down all right it was just a picture of this woman and then another folded over picture of jk simmons and w the editing of this film just told us that he gained the information that we just saw from reading that which Osmosis. is <laughs> and it just it's it's mind boggling how weird that is it's just weird so he gets out of the car finally apropos of nothing and he sees the snowman he miraculously has the letter from the snowman guy in his hand he's literally holding it and he compares the two snowmen like they're he's like hmm is this a decent artistic representation of the snowman that i'm seeing before me it kind of is <laughs> he's he's frowning instead of smiling just like in my picture here um so whatever but it's not the same snowman because the last time we saw that snowman it had a scarf on it and the scarf is now gone so again i 
I think that snowman and that shot, that whole sequence was from a different part of the movie and they just moved it up here to have it make I sense. I have no doubt. I have no to, doubt. To have some be, bit of connective tissue from Harry getting out of the car to going inside the house. Because when he arrives inside the house, he finds the little girl and the little girl is wearing a donkey mask. Why is the little girl wearing a donkey mask? Uh, <laughs> I assumed that it was part of the surrealist patchwork that is this film, and <laughs> I, I just and that I will never up. be prepared for anything that it's going to throw at me. I just wanted somebody to say, we're children, we're children. <laughs> <laughs> this is what children do. Um, so she's wearing a donkey mask. He makes donkey sounds. Michael Fassbender makes donkey sounds to connect with her emotionally. <laughs> And then he begins to question her. And so here is, is again, we've already talked a little bit about this film having glimmers of stuff. All right. And so Harry sits down with this little girl who has apparently not really been talking to anybody about what she's seen. Maybe because nobody's asked, right? Like nobody's, everybody just assumes the little girl was asleep. She doesn't know anything. But Fassbender, you know, like here's the little glimpse that we get of him being a halfway decent investigator. But this is literally it. <laughs> yeah, but this is it. And he's he's straight up just asking her, like, well, what happened before you went to bed? Nobody <laughs> well, thought to ask basic. her that. So, who, oh, I never even thought to ask the little girl who was here with her mother when she disappeared. If anything weird happened before she went to bed. I never hmm. asked those basic things because I'm terrible at my job. <laughs> right. And, you know, we've already seen Rebecca Ferguson upstairs with whatever newfangled machine they have. It, it looks like it's literally held together with duct tape. It's just so funny. And she's like video recording the lady, the neighbor from across the street who saw the girl wandering around. Uh, she's wearing the scarf from the snowman again. So I guess we're supposed to believe that that's where it went. No one is asked about the snowman, even though the girl girl is, is very clearly said that I didn't build it. I don't know where it came from. And then the conversation ends because Rebecca Ferguson gets a phone call, which again doesn't make sense. Like she interrupts them and Harry's like, oh, well, the moment's over. Can't question her anymore. She'll never tell me anything. She heard a cell phone ring. But we do get a couple of key pieces of information, right? I didn't build the snowman. And mom and dad were having problems mom might have been having an affair right and so harry looks at her schedule like her calendar and sees that she's been meeting with a doctor a woman going to a doctor go on and so he makes note of her schedule and and then you know the scene basically ends although we do get a nice shot of rebecca ferguson outside the window with whatever stupid device they're using she's just like walking around the yard with it in front i did like i said i did kind of love that i wish that the film <laughs> so had been more complete so that that could have been maybe a, a plot point like something funny that the the movie could have leaned on a little bit to make these characters at all likable um well, but it didn't. It like I didn't like anybody in this movie. Yeah, even though they're very good actors, nobody's likable enough to really care about. The thing that killed me was, you know, so like this tech, like this this technology that they're using. I, 
the only reason you would introduce something like that to me in a film, like if it was in the book, I understand that's that's fine. Have a part of it in the film. But the only reason that you would introduce it in the movie is if at some point a character is either going to be using that technology and helped with it and helped by it in a surprising way, or it's going to catch something or provide some piece of information later down the road that they desperately need. And that just never happens. Yeah. Right. So all this time is spent on seeing this, these characters use this technology and then it, it comes of nothing. So Harry arrives back home he takes the files that she had confiscated, which are apparently about this killing with, with Rafto. And then we get another, I think we're supposed to believe it's a flashback inspired by the, the file that he's supposedly reading that doesn't have files in it and features the work of a guy who was not a member of the police department at the time. And this this scene is utter insanity to me, right? Because the first we get a, a long, you know, tra- like helicopter shot of the city that it's set in. Then we're obviously in an apartment, like Rafto's apartment, Val Kilmer's apartment, and he is loading up a sport bottle with vodka, right? <laughs> because he is also a drunk, and he's staring at something. Everyone's a winner in this movie. And he's staring at something, basically a police radio, okay? So he's staring at this police radio. He's saying nothing. He's just looking at it while he's filling this bottle with booze. And we're hearing police radio chatter. And it is the most perfect police radio chatter ever because it's like, oh, no, there's been a murder. Oh, (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) The other guy responds and is like, really? A murder? And he's like, yes. And children saw, we must help them. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, yes, we must. Okay, so we get that. Then he gets onto a, a uh, tram right, to go up the mountain where the murder is taking place. And the dialogue just keeps going. It's the same guys. Right, so this conversation that he originally began hearing at his apartment has continued until he arrives at the location. He's not supposed to be there because he's he's not currently on the police force, but he arrives, and then they begin commenting on his arrival. <laughs> and one of them says, "Like, what's Rafto doing here?" in the most English accent ever. And then. The other guy's like, yeah, I thought he was suspended. What a dork. (laughs) Like, basically, Val Kilmer can't speak. And so every scene that he is in is being dubbed over by these two cops who are talking about him. And it's just, it it is utterly bewildering. He passes a tram full of children who are all crying because (laughs) they've seen this terrible thing. But we knew it was coming because one of the cops is like, oh, a bunch of children. Oh. And then he gets to the top, presumably where the murder's taking place. Toby Jones is there. Again, this might this may be Toby Jones' only scene in this movie. It's the only one that stands out to me. 
but while they meet, okay, so like this is supposed to be Val Kilmer and Toby Jones meeting. Uh, Toby Jones is supposed to be, I think he's playing another cop. And so he's supposed to meet. And while they're walking up to each other, while they're getting ready to have a conversation, we just keep getting that goddamn conversation between these two cops <laughs> over the wire speaker. And they're like, what are we going to do? Rafto's here. He's like, oh, what a chump. And it just, we keep hearing this conversation that is coming from nowhere. They were committed. They're not present. It's just, and you can tell it's, it's simply because Val Kilmer cannot perform the dialogue. And it's just crazy. So then he goes and we get a really cool shot. He's like on the edge of this cliff and there's a snowman, of course, of course. shoots his gun into the air and it makes all these birds fly away. And we see that this woman, presumably this uh, Lalisa on and whatever her name is, uh, her body has been dismembered in this, this strange way. Like one arm has been cut off and segmented. One leg has been, but the other ones are fine. And then we cut back out of that flashback and he's looking at that goddamn file again and it, uh, the only thing in the file that connects to it is the, the condition of the body. Yeah, they have that so, little children's drawing. Yeah, like a confidentially <laughs> draw it, like a four-year-old. I drew this on a napkin so uh, I could uh, remember what uh, happened. Look at how this kid, uh, look at how this lady was drawing. So he's read the file, he sees Rebecca Ferguson the next day, and, and he tries to get her to explain like why she's interested in this, and and God, I can't. It's just, it's baffling. This is a baffling film. <laughs> and so he's, he has cut a hot dog in segments. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's the dramatic end of the scene. Is he's cut a hot dog into segments. And he turns around his plate to show it to her. And then she looks uncomfortable. And that's how the diner scene ends. It's just. Do what I did with my hot dog. Yeah, he's like, oh, so we're talking about vivisected ladies in the snow, huh? Well, look at what I did to this hot dog here. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's pieces of this movie that are here. Now, I do remember there was a scene in the trailer where, it, but it wasn't in the cafe. It was like in, in the police station. And he was talking about the crude nature of, of, the vivisection of the cutting up the cutting up of things and how like it's, it's a very childlike behavior right and and you know like again like actual police detective work slash profiling of a killer sort of stuff and it really feels like this it needed something like that in the scene like something to say oh you know like this is this is something crude and cruel that you would do and it, but it just ends. He just turns the plate of sausage around with the cuts, and that's the end of the scene. It, it it's so weird. And, and so then we cut back. So it, I think all really that scene's supposed to do is that Harry is invested now. He's interested in the case because uh, there was a scene like much earlier where he tells his boss like I need something to work on. Like I need work because I I don't know what to do without work. And that does kind of get borne up in the film. Like, if he doesn't have a case to work on, he's just kind of like this directionless idiot. Who just <laughs> I'm just going to drink more. Drug. Uh, but when he's when he's got a case to wrap his head around, he actually does. He can be a good detective. So he goes back, he interviews the husband, and, and basically finds out that she probably was having an affair, but at the very least was 
was starting to work late more and more and was beginning to neglect uh, their child. Which now becomes the, the sort of running theme in this film about women who neglect their responsibilities, right? <clears throat> but we, we can't just focus on that. So we need weird, random subplots that go absolutely nowhere, which kick off in the very next scene. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson is... I, I think the editing is, is trying to tell us that she's watching all of this happen. But there is absolutely no evidence. The editing is telling us something. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no evidence to support that it's actually happening. Like as far as we know, it's just Rebecca Ferguson sitting in a car staring at something, and then they just intercut it with this to make us believe that this is what she's watching as a character. But so we see this uh, dark-haired girl go into this ornate, gated mansion and, and then disappear. Rebecca Ferguson looks at it looks perturbed by it and then puts on her seatbelt and that's the scene to the scene. I mean, I always try to end my dramatic scenes with characters putting on seatbelts, you know, social responsibility is important. Makes sense. Uh, then we cut to Harry with his ex-girlfriend watching Oleg's hockey game. Uh, and, and a, a brief introduction to her new boyfriend, uh, Matthias, I believe is his name. Um, where then Charlotte Gainsbourg uh, spends the majority of the scene attempting to get at least one of these two men to eat a hot dog. Lots of hot dogs. Right, hot dogs everywhere, right? She says, I have vouchers, go get a hot dog. And he's like, no, I'm fine. She's like, no, go get a hot dog. I don't know if this is supposed to like tonally touch back to Harry vivisecting the hot dog at the cafe earlier. <laughs> or I think it's, if it's just, just Charlotte Gainsbourg wants to see many hot dogs. Uh, well, she was in, in, uh, she, she was, was in Nymphomaniac, so it makes sense. <clears throat> so Harry has a brief moment with, uh, new boyfriend, Matthias, um, and, uh, Matthias offers, uh, to give him drugs immediately <laughs> because he's a doctor and he says, I can prescribe you anything you want. And he pulls out his cell phone. And he's like, what do you want? You want drugs? <laughs> you want some sleep pills? <laughs> you want something that's going to help you sleep? Yeah, I got that. And Harry's Habits like, you can time. just... You can just do that? And he's like, oh, yeah, right here on my phone. Super easy. <laughs> I, can just, I can just give you drugs right here on my phone. No problem. And and so then I think this is where Harry is, like, getting his prescription. Like, I need to go get my prescription thing begins because that becomes a thing for a while. Uh, but he's supposed to take Oleg out for his birthday, right? This is the, the concert tickets and all that stuff. And again, some of these moments as he's taking Oleg out are kind of sweet. You know, like Oleg's like, oh, you're going to tell me not to drink and be a jerk. And he's like, don't be a dickhead, right? <laughs> you know, there's like nice little, you know, yeah, they, decent Fossbender moments. They had a nice relationship. I just, I didn't know. I, I still don't understand how that's supposed to fit into the rest of the film. I, I can see where the family drama thematically sort of circles back around to the plot but it just it felt very unbalanced i wasn't sure like is this a murder mystery or is this about a man who is sort of de facto father for this young boy and he has a really complicated family situation it just kind of didn't feel like it knew how to make up its mind well i mentioned in the original book I, I think the, the 
well, okay, because we'll, we'll go ahead and spoil this here. Uh, new boyfriend is the killer. <clears throat> dun dun right? dun. Yeah, there's. Don't worry. There's nothing in the movie to hint at or give you any indication yeah. that that's the case until the last five minutes when the movie just says, "Oh, hey, he's the killer." Um, but he's the killer. And so I think in the book, it's supposed to be this idea that Harry has this dangerous, looming threat in his life that is that is invested and interested in, in the particulars of him and his relationships, and he has no idea, right? Like, he, he doesn't understand that connection at all until it becomes crucial. But the movie just botches the reveal and handling of that so desperately that it, it's basically a waste. Yeah. So Harry um, takes Oleg to this um, concert, which seems to just be a man bopping around and screaming and perhaps another example of, of human music uh, on display here. I am I have no doubt that it, it is some incredibly famous Norwegian band and I am just not getting it but I don't even have the energy to Google who it is and find out. I just, I care so little. Uh, normally I do. Normally I'd be like, oh, I wonder who this is, but nope, not even interested. doesn't matter. But so he takes Oleg, they end up leaving. Okay, so this this particular sequence again, I think is very interesting. So let's, this is the one I talked about earlier. Let's break it down. So they're at, he's at the concert with Oleg. He's having a seemingly good time, although Oleg looks bored out of his mind, which seems like makes sense. Oleg gets a text message. Not Harry, right? Because Harry has like a, a terrible cell phone that doesn't work. Oleg gets a message. And hands his phone to <laughs> Harry. And the phone says, urgent message for Harry. So Harry says, I need to take this call, right? And they leave. Mm -hmm. Harry takes the call. Mm -hmm. It is Rebecca Ferguson saying there's been a murder, another one, got to come now. Cut to Harry dropping Oleg off at home. Uh, Matthias is there wearing a fish apron. That's very fetching also typing away on his phone. Mm. 80 yard behind the back conversation with <laughs> with Michael Fassbender. We have no idea what he was actually saying, but we know what he's saying now. Uh, he says he, th he thinks, you know, like had a good time or something. And Rebecca Ferguson is just waiting outside in the car. We don't know if they arrived in, if like Rebecca Ferguson took them to Oleg's house, or if she just met them at Oleg's house, or if she's just stalking Harry and following him everywhere he goes. We don't know. When we saw him leave earlier, they then got on a bus and went to the concert. But now, he, Rebecca Ferguson is just sitting outside. So here's what I think, right? Um, I think originally this scene was supposed to be they go to the concert, they come home. They realized that they needed something to propel the plot forward because otherwise this is a scene that means nothing and has nothing to do with anything. Then they had a shot of Rebecca Ferguson sitting on a random street looking out of her car. 
So they put that and then had Charlotte Gainsborough in the shot that they did later because the pen <laughs> on the wall is a little different, looking out the window like she's making eye contact with Rebecca Ferguson. And then we get an, a completely 80-yard line. We never see Harry. We never visibly watch him do anything. We hear a car door open and he says, take me home. We'll go in the morning. <laughs> so we left the concert, went all the way home. And then tells her in an 80-yard line, no, we're not even going to go tonight. <laughs> it's just like, what is happening? It's, it doesn't make sense. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, it's this movie is weird. It's really, really weird. I don't understand most of the decisions that were made. Even, even if it is a problem of editing, I still don't know if this would be a good movie. <laughs> it's, it's just so strange. So then the next morning, they're crossing a bridge. It's daytime. Uh, again, I think the problem was is that that scene was at night and this scene's the, and, and the scene of them traveling is in the day and they just, they couldn't, they just, they didn't have any way to, to link them together. So Harry had to say, we can't go tomorrow morning. Then the entire conversation about what has gone on and what is happening is delivered through ADR voice lines as they approach the, as they approach the home. Right? Like, we never see them in the car talking. We never see them doing anything. We just... <laughs> we just have them talking about, like, oh, she was so-and-so, and she called this morning, and blah, blah, blah. And then we get another example of human music playing inside the house <laughs> as they go in. <laughs> and, and here's where uh, at... What are we? We are 45 minutes into this movie, and here, Chloe 70 is introduced right she is some kind of farm there are i forgot she was in the movie yeah when her face finally showed up i was like oh she was in the credits yeah yeah still in this movie now i want to ask you i don't know if you remember but there were there were clothes hanging on clotheslines around the uh the house and i was trying really hard to figure out what these are because it well it all looks like underwear to me (laughs) Uh, like every bit of it is just underwear, and I don't, I don't know if that's just me being weird and saying like, mm, yes, they do underwear. look. It, I mean, it does look a lot like underwear. I, I mean, I assume it's supposed to be like little flags or something, but they're so tattered. Uh, yeah, I don't. I just don't. It know looks like under. It just looks like clotheslines of frozen underwear. And and so they arrive. And, oh, okay, all right. So they get there, and they say, okay, someone. Again, I, we have to address the timeline here. So last night, someone calls the police and says, oh, there's been another one. Rebecca Ferguson calls Harry Hole. Harry Hole says, we'll go in the morning. They arrive, apparently after traveling a decent distance, and Chloe Seventy is just there, and she's fine. Nothing's wrong. And so they're like, hey, we're from the Oslo Police Department responding to your call, blah, 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 uh, missing person or something. And she's like, well, I'm nobody's missing i'm i'm here i'm not missing at all everything's fine and then they just kind of look at each other and they're like oh well okay then Um, (laughs) i guess we'll take off and they do and then after they take off again what the editing would indicate are moments because she is looking out the window the car drives past in her view (laughs) and then within seconds (laughs) 
And then she calls someone and says, don't do this kind of stuff. I told you we're over. And is having a conversation with someone, laughing about it. She says, I don't ever want to see you again. And these are intercut with shots of a guy in what looks like a postman's uniform. I'm sure it's just a nice heavy parka, but in a postman's <laughs> uniform approaching her home. And then she is murdered. Her head is cut off violently uh, with some kind of, of garroting tool that you would use to like kill an animal or something. Yeah. Okay. And, and then there's, there's, there's also a dead baby in this uh, scene. Yeah, the, uh, the I thought it was a baby and it was a doll. Yeah, it's just a doll. It looked really real for a second, though. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, is this movie going to go there? No, no, it's just a doll. And then she is, uh, the, the killer has some kind of vial of something, some kind of, of drug, and he lightly grazes her neck with it and she immediately collapses. It's and so then he, work. Yeah, the drugs are very cool. And then he garrets her with this this garroting machine, which seems way more complex than you would need to use to accomplish the task at hand. But so he he garrets her, cuts her head off, and and then puts it on top of a snowman. <laughs> and, and so our our heroes, our 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 beleaguered and brilliant detectives, are still traveling on what would seem to be the road that they they literally just left like it's been i'm gonna say 10 minutes and they're traveling and they're like hey that lady she's disappeared again and they're like how we just what? We just left there and they're like the call came in two minutes ago and so they turn around and the scene that we've just been shown is in the bright daytime daytime <laughs> and and then in the 10 minutes that it has taken them to return to this location, maybe it was longer, but I'm just telling you what we saw on screen. In the 10 minutes that it's taken them to return, it is now fully nighttime, and this woman's twin sister has arrived at home and is very concerned. I had to back this part up at least four times. So it was like... It's is there a, a large portion missing that I just did not see? I was like, did I get an edited for TV version or something? Like, what is this? I really, uh, I, I really thought I had done something wrong. Right. And no. so they, uh, so they go into the barn and chickens are eating the the dead body. Then they're in a snowcat looking around the property. And they find the snowman, which is so far away. I just have no idea how far. It's like so far away. So the geography's all messed up, and it just doesn't make sense. Because he finds the snowman at the round, circular, like silo-looking building. But he was just in a snowcat driving for like a really long distance. But we're shown in the establishing shot of this location that that circular building is literally right next to the house where she died yeah well so yeah. you I, needed again, to get the jeep out or something i mean they paid for it so we're yeah. gonna see it <laughs> and so then uh, chloe 70 gets a chance to actually act instead of just have her head chopped off and and we find out that her twin sister was was she kind of got around 
She liked men. She always did from the time she was a young girl. She just liked men. Enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, this scene just, it, it may, I, I love it because it's absolutely out of this world bonkers. So Rebecca Ferguson's trying to question about like, you know, hey, what was going on with her? And she's like, oh yeah, she really got around. She's, mm, mm, loved them boys. That was loved her them thing. Loved them all the time. <laughs> that was her thing. So what she was into. Uh, and, you know, then she got pregnant, but she decided not to keep it. But that's probably not relevant, right? Like, and then you can see Rebecca Ferguson is like, oh, it's relevant. <laughs> and and then we get this great shot of them putting, like, the severed Chloe Seveny head in a box and just covering it up. And, and, and then we're at the Winter Sports World Cup. <laughs> because this movie's edited brilliantly. So they put the... De- Okay, so plot thread that goes nowhere two, slightly related to plot thread that goes nowhere one, is about a wealthy industrialist hosting or sponsoring the Winter Games in Norway. What the played, hell was this doing in the movie? By J.K. Simmons. Who is not looking for pictures of Spider-Man. No. He, gosh darn it. He doesn't want pictures of Spider-Man. So this scene is so weird because it's all these people in tuxes and then there are people in hockey suits skating around them. Yeah. Yeah. So when there's like some guy who's like cross country skiing on roller skates. mm -hmm, What the mm -hmm. heck? That was awesome. I mean, it's a winter sports event, but what I think it is, is it's a reshoot and they, just put a bunch of people in a room and then they needed to be like, you know, we've got to tie this. We, we need people to understand this is a winter sports event. So we're just going to go to the local hockey rink and we're going to grab Carl and then we're going to have Carl skate his way through this room. So, you know, that these two scenes are connected to each other. Uh, so Rebecca Ferguson is here and this movie loves Rebecca Ferguson and it loves having her be in places that don't make sense for her to be usually inside of cars. And so the girl that we saw enter the like strange mansion earlier is now uh, entering this, this facility, this building. And Harry is there as well. We don't know what's brought them here. We don't know why they've. (laughs) That's kind of the theme of this movie. We don't know why. (laughs) We don't know why they've, they've come. Um, Unless was there, did Chloe Seventy mention something? Was did she say something about this guy? I, I honestly I can't remember. I, uh, did she? I don't remember her mentioning. How did he come up? I don't know. I felt like I passed out, and when I came to J.K. Simmons was in the movie. Apropos yeah, just, of nothing. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm really struggling. No, I don't think so. Because the last thing she mentions in that scene is like she she got rid of the baby, and that's that's it. And so like we know that the the, the J.K. Simmons character was connected to the the lace Aaron disappearance somehow, but that's really it. Um, so I think. Oh no! Okay, they go there because. Harry needs to show something to the... 
I'm going to call him Chief Inspector. I don't know what he is. DCR, Detective Chief Inspector, I guess. Um, they, that's where he is. He's at the event. <clears throat> and so Harry goes to, to show him the letter that he got the badly drawn snowman as now some piece of evidence that it's a serial killer. And just so happens that J.K. Simmons is there and his illegal prostitution ring he's decided to take pictures of and advertise the availability of this new girl at this major event where there are a lot of really famous people, including the detective chief inspector of the Oslo police. So the reason he goes to the event is uh, DCI inspector guy is there and he wants to show him that he, he can't wait till the next day so they have to go to the 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 event for the olympics to for him to show him the snowman letter that he got in the mail and say there's a snowman guy and then the guy of course is like eh, who cares about snowman guys <laughs> or something like that who cares about final- snowman i only care about I don't know. I was going to make a joke there. It's, it fell flat. There's no yeah, jokes okay. to be made. There's no jokes to be made. It's the movie itself is a joke. Um, but, you know, J.K. Simmons, he's he's running this illegal prostitution ring or something, and he chooses to, like, take pictures of his new girl at this event. Like, it just yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. Well, it was so the, funny when the, the dude comes up with the chick during the event and is, like, pointing at her. And he's like, eh? Like, eh? 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 Yeah, here's one. Here's one. This is weird. <laughs> but now we get like really our only like detectives having conversations scene, which in my experience, generally, detective movies have lots of detectives having conversation scenes um, as they work through the, the peculiarities of the crime. But we don't get a ton of those here. Uh, and so they, they arrive at a Dr. Vettelson's house, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, we've already been shown that he's working with J.K. Simmons to you know, exploit these young women. Um, we find out that he's, uh, he's an abor- is he like an abortion doctor primarily? I think that's how it works. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um something like that like he's 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 like supposed to be some sort of fertility doctor or something but he does everything and really it's just a front for him to run this prostitution ring the movie's very specific about showing that he has painted toenails which i don't really know why like he's sitting in this really peculiar and awkward way on this couch just to show off that he has painted toenails and so i don't know if that's supposed to be like the movie being like hey eh? paints his toenails uh, it's <laughs> that very means str- something it, yeah it's just, it's very uh, awkward and and weird but so they question him a bit rebecca ferguson already knows these he's got something going on because of the the girl that's staying at his his home uh, she's already you know seen her now several times come in and out and, and be associated with this prostitution ring so in traditional detective stories this is this is a red herring right these are other potential people who could be doing this, right? Yeah. These these two guys are abusive. They're taking advantage of women. Maybe one goes too far, and and you know they eliminate her, or or they're this is part of some weird 
you know, sick sex thing, right? Like this is this is like typical like one hundred one. We're making a mystery movie, red herring stuff. But at no point do these guys ever connect back to the crime in anything other than extremely superficial ways. So Harry keeps like digging through records and he finds more examples of missing girls. Uh, and, and then eventually he kind of makes the connection between Katrine and these other murders back in Bergen and, and decides to, to go on a little trip. Uh, Matthias shows back up again. Uh, again, this is only the third time we've seen him in the movie. And again, he has like a bunch of awkward conversations with Harry keeps questioning about his his meds prescription his meds and prescriptions and I he kind of gets mad at Harry because he canceled going on a school trip with Oleg and all right so again if we're talking about like really good mystery stories you want all of the clues of the killer to be visible, but not enough to push you over the edge to say this is the person. But in this one, we don't get any of that. No. Like, Matthias seems like a doof, which is a great cover to have for your killer, right? You want to make him seem like somebody that's kind of bumbling. And, you know, it's the, the Clark Kent effect, right? Oh, he could never be that guy. He's too much of a jerk, even though all these other pieces fall into place. But he, he actually kind of seems a bit nice. He kind of covers for Harry, says it's kind of his fault. And, he, you know, he, he takes all this credit, you know, to sort of cover Harry's butt. You know, so again, we're not getting any indications of, of who this guy might actually be. And that's fine. I don't want to know the killer at this point in the movie. But if, if this is legitimately supposed to be a suspect, we should have some components be suspect. And they're just not. All right, there's not enough here for us to tie them together. So now we get Harry. Um, you know, we've seen the two flashbacks with Val Kilmer, the very awkward police guys talking over radios flashbacks and now Harry Hole is, is in Bergen and he is researching the case that that sort of brought Rafto down uh, so we get another flashback this time prompted I believe by um, he has a, a conversation with like one of the guys who was involved and and that leads to another flashback a little bit more Toby Jones right so he gets a few more lines few more Val Kilmer bad ADR lines and and more of this unspools but it just doesn't go anywhere man like I, I don't know I can't I, I it's hard for me to even say like he's learning information about Rafto he's learning information about this uh, this this woman who was killed these nine years ago but it doesn't really move the yeah, mystery none forward. of it means anything it's yeah, just like, all stuff that we're learning for no apparent reason. Yeah, and so then we get our first use of this technology that they've been using throughout the whole thing, uh, which is, is basically her like getting some location data on a guy and what it's about. 
And now we're getting intercut between Rebecca Ferguson sort of going off on her own little investigation to the doctor's house to, um, you know, sort of figure out his involvement with all of this stuff. And she ends up, does she like break into his house? Isn't that what she does? Like, Yes. I, yeah, yeah. She yeah. breaks into his house. And then she opens up his garage and finds that he has been, uh, he's had his head blown off with a shotgun. While he had this beautiful ornate mirror to watch it happen, <laughs> which I, I know what the movie was trying to do because right as you know the snowman is is there, of course, but right as she's discovering that, we discover that Rafto died in, in basically the same situation, right? Where his death was ruled as a suicide because he was found with a shotgun in his hand, he'd blown his own head off, and we find the doctor in the same you know thing, so. Again, Harry very quickly makes it back. This seemed like a really long trip. Um, I, at least to me, it seemed like it was a long trip. And then uh, he, he's at the doctor's house. And in the doctor's refrigerator are all of these dismembered pieces of women, right? So obviously, just like with Rafto, the doctor's being set up as the fall guy, you know, for the thing. And so now everything's fine. You know, the killer is gone. We don't have to worry about anything anymore. And we find out that Rafto was looking into J.K. Simmons' character, right? Like, I. So she doesn't buy that the doctor was responsible. She thinks that that uh, J.K. Simmons' character is the the real responsible one. And, and she's not going to let it go, basically, right? So Harry's like, you know, it's over. Just leave it alone. And, uh, you know, she's not going to let that happen. And so then we get another shot of a guy building a snowman. It's a staff of <laughs> nothing. These, I, I'm telling you, man, these feel like such reshoot bait where they're like, hey, we need, you know, just Terry, 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 get the camera and go out. We really need somebody to just make some snowmen for us. Can you just make some snowmen? Just give a couple shots. And we get another snowman sting. Presumably it's the snowman the guy just built. And he built a three-tiered snowman. But on the middle tier, on the back side, it's a frowny snowman. It's frowny on the back side, baby. But no. you didn't see that side, Rebecca Ferguson. You don't know the danger that's coming down on you now. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh, dude. It's so, I mean, it's, it's kind of awesome in its, in its terribleness. Um, did we even talk about fake, uh, we didn't, we didn't even talk about fake, uh, mold removal guy. He yeah. comes in and there's a dude listening to human music yeah. <laughs> and dancing and he kicks him out. And then as he passes another, he passes mold removal guy on the street and it was uh, a mold removal guy. It wasn't mold removal guy. Oh my God. And but nothing then, happened. So it doesn't really matter. And then nothing is mentioned of Mulder Bilbo Guy ever again. And Harry is sleeping on the floor in his apartment on top of records. He uses a pill his his pillows are records. It was nice of the killer to come and help remove his mold from. That's true. That's true. Not that you it was really affecting him in any way. Harry Hole is much stronger than mold. <laughs> and so 
so here's where Rebecca Ferguson uh, begins her her very quick exit of this film. She decides that she's going to go after the Arnest Scova, whatever his name is, J.K. Simmons' character. She's uh, going to she's going to do a personal sting. She's, she's going to pretend to be a lady that wants to to have the the sweet sexy times with him, and lure him in, and then kill him kill him. I guess I don't I don't know. She's going to she's going to do, gonna do something. <laughs> And this is all, and so she's doing this, and this is interspersed with an awkward and completely lame love scene between Michael Fassbender and Charlotte Gainsbourg, where, um, is it, I, I think it's, it's a, a Sigur Rose song that's playing, or, or something along those lines, I, again, I, I didn't look it up, but, um, I mean, I like Sigur Rós a lot, but it's not music that I would make. Love no, to. no, I think I mean, that it's was kind of the opposite of that. I was sort of chatting with people in in Discord as I was watching the film, and I think that's where I lost, I lost my faith entirely. Already, the film is not sexy. It, it goes out of its way to be very not sexy, and for, then yeah, for a film that focuses this much on sex and lovemaking, it is is ridiculously unsexy in all ways yeah and then when you throw icelandic moody music on top of it i don't know <laughs> i don't know i i couldn't i couldn't with that and yeah it, it was something else but so rebecca ferguson is going to sting him by filming uh by filming their their, their coitus I guess we could say, and and then blackmailing him, and and we find out that Charlotte Gainsbourg's cell phone, cell phone tone is flight of the bumblebees. Why? I don't understand. It's so weird. Just everything that happens it's is so weird. weird. So the love, you know, their their scene ends. They don't really make love. She just kind of sits on top of him for a while. Uh, and I don't, I mean, he still has his pants on and stuff. So I don't, I don't think anything goes. He looked she gets horrified the whole time. Like what's yeah, happening? <laughs> what is going on? I don't understand this. And then she finds the sleeping pills and, and some of the other medication that uh, Matthias had prescribed in his, again, this feels like a subplot that was supposed to go somewhere and it just doesn't like, like Matthias is drugging him or something. It, it's just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And then Rebecca Ferguson, co-lead of film, star of film, is brutally murdered by the snowman in the bed. Yeah. Uh, in, in J.K. Simmons' bed, and then just just uh, left there. Suddenly. It was yeah. very sudden. Not even like, a lot of build-up to it. It just, she was in the whole movie, and then she died. Right, and... Uh, it's it's very interesting because I think I mean there there's usually that scene I mean, if we're talking about traditional mysteries and I think that's what this is trying to do there usually is that scene where like you know they're getting too close and the yeah. killer has to like take one of them out because they know too much sure this isn't that no they they don't know they don't know a goddamn thing nope. they don't know any, they think it's over right and like her dying seemed completely accidental. Like a just a this could happen as well, even though there's no reason for it to. Yeah, and, and so he cuts her finger off uh, <laughs> after death. 
because he has to cut something off, I guess. You know, vivisect, vivisected sausages. We, we have to have something. Hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but she's gone. Uh, surprising J.K. Simmons. Uh, and this is the last time we will see J.K. Simmons in this film. Uh, as he walks into a bedroom expecting to have sex with Rebecca Ferguson. And Rebecca Ferguson is gone. His job is done here. His job is done here. And so Rebecca Ferguson is in her car again. She's in her car a lot in this movie. Uh, in her car again, but now she's dead and her finger is gone. And so here is the the plot that I think the the device that they've been carrying around, this is where it was supposed to lead, is that he has her finger. With her fingerprint, he should be able to access the entire database of files about him and know what they know. Which is nothing. Which, <laughs> if they knew something, would matter. If they were closing <laughs> in on him, would make a difference. <laughs> But the film that we are watching, they are clueless as fuck, and they have no idea what's going on. So his murdering of Rebecca Ferguson, they thought the case was over. They had pinned it on the doctor. Everything was finished. And now they know, or at least they believe, that he's still out there. So killing her, rather than gaining information or improving his, his situation, he's actually made it much much worse well <laughs> and and so again the 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 device you know they're sort of looking through some of the files that she had called and and harry has a, a brief moment of realization that um that the killer is That the killer is targeting, you know, bad mothers, right? And that the, and that the mom was, uh, the mom, the first mom that was killed, the mom with the little girl, that they were going to that doctor to try and, and have another baby and it wasn't working and they discovered that that the dad was uh infertile and that the daughter is is not his right like the wife had been having continual affairs and and stuff for a long time and and like that's that's the reason why she was killed so again like there are pieces of this that would be kind of interesting but all of it's coming together and the pieces, the threads that Harry is pulling on, they don't really matter or make sense. So it's like, okay, he, you know what kind of person he's targeting and you know that he was finding out about them through this doctor, but that's it. <laughs> right, okay. So the trigger is he talks to this dad and the dad says we saw some kind of hormone specialist on the day that we, that I found out that I was infertile and that's how I knew. And that's how I knew that the wife had been messing around on me. And then Harry goes, but what was the guy's name? And of course it's Matias. It's the boyfriend. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. 
he was there when we found out that I'm infertile. And so he's the one that knew that the mom was a bad mom. And again, this scene would have resonance if he had done any police work at all to get to this point. <laughs> but, he, but he hasn't, right? Like, this is literally the guy that he talked to first, and he didn't have all of the pieces. So we're we're moving into the the, the final moments of this film. Are we? And, <laughs> How can and, you tell? <laughs> and Matthias begins making very bad choices based on limited information. Right. So we've just seen a scene where Harry has discovered that Matthias was related to this in a way that was unexpected. Okay. But now Matthias decides to kidnap. Oleg and Raquel for basically no reason because he has no idea what Harry's just discovered right how would he how could he know that but he somehow has convinced himself that this is all coming to an end and so he decides to kidnap Harry's family lack of a better word and then you know you know we do get a scene Harry goes to his house and, and sort of breaks in. He finds the blue paper and, and, you know, all the evidence that he feels that he needs to confirm that, you know, Matthias is the guy. And so maybe Matthias is sort of monitoring that and keeping up with it. We find that he's got detailed files on all of the women that have been killed uh, and finally ending with Raquel and Oleg. So Harry knows that they're the next targets, uh, even though he hasn't, targeted any sort of young men up until this point but you know whatever it's all in the spirit of the thing <laughs> <laughs> and so we get i think what's supposed to be like an exciting you know sort of like where you know he he charges out to basically everything comes to an end at, at the, the original house Right, and we find out that Matthias was the young boy whose mother drove her red Volvo that appeared as if from nowhere into a lake and then watched him as she drowned, and that he has been murdering bad mothers ever since and then dismembering them and leaving snowmen outside of places because that's what he did when his mother you know, made the decision to allow herself to die or something. Um, and uh, he's getting ready to to Garrett, Raquel, and and you know we get kind of a big fight sequence, I guess. Um, <laughs> like Harry ends up getting getting pretty hurt. Like Matthias is obviously kind of dangerous. He's powerful. They get into a scuffle and run outside, and they end up you know basically fighting on the same lake that his mother died on. I guess or no. the same. Let's say the same fjord. <laughs> now, this actually bothered me the most because this was the best looking part of the movie mm. mm -hmm. with all of the nice shots in it. And I was like, why doesn't the rest of the movie look like this? Yeah, it feels very strange. Like, I mean, for a climax, it certainly ratchets things up in the way that you would want, but it doesn't fit tonally with anything else that we've seen in no. this film. This is a plotting movie. Like, it doesn't move fast at all. And here we get all of this like raucous music and 
these beautiful shots, these, these beautiful lake shots and all this stuff. I mean, Harry is, is basically standing out on the water, just like screaming, like, come on. You know, it's like, are we in 300 again, Michael Fassbender? And then he mm-hmm. just gets freaking shot. <laughs> and then there's all of those flashbacks that I think the killer is having, but for mm-hmm. some reason they're they're spliced in with Michael Fassbender's face. So the suggestion is that he is seeing those things. <laughs> Like, it's a very small thing, but it's just another one of those moments where it's like, what were you, I see what you tried to do, but that is not what happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, Matthias is supposed to be sort of flashing back to his childhood, seeing his mother and, you know, himself as a child. And, and he's supposed to have this like huge emotional revelation that his mother didn't abandon him didn't really hate him which nothing about the opening sequence ever said to me that his mother hated him or didn't love him but that you know something had happened she was despondent and and you know chose to take her own life but it was, you know, but Fosspender's like, it was your dad. Like, your dad was the jerk, not your mom. So why are you punishing these women, you know? And, you know, so he kind of has this moment of like, hmm, maybe you're right. And then he drowns in the lake and dies. <laughs> and yeah, that, and that happened very fast. Yeah, again, it just, it feels like we don't have this footage. Because all of the things that they shot, the shoe on the ice, the... The grasping under the water. And we don't even know whose foot that was. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't need any of the principal actors. You don't need anything to shoot that stuff. It all just feels very strange and very out of place. And so Harry returns to the home. And this final sequence really threw me for a loop. Because Oleg and Raquel are inside the house, sort of, you know, clutched in each other's arms. Harry approaches, and again, I, I the geography of this home, they're in the kitchen. Okay, they're they're in the kitchen of the house. Harry rolls up like a garage door. Yeah. And and is and by the eye lines, which don't really match up, but by the eye lines, I think we're supposed to believe that he's staring at Raquel and Oleg after having rolled up a garage door into the kitchen. (laughs) Which is not a thing, and nothing else in the house matches up with that. There is no garage door on that house that we've seen. It it's it is it's either a garage door or it's like the back of a Subaru hatchback. (laughs) Like he's (laughs) like they're in the back of that. (laughs) It is definitely something being rolled up or lifted up, right? It is not a a door being opened. (laughs) Nothing. And so again I will refer briefly to the trailer. There are some shots at the end of the trailer of Michael Fossbender looking very emotional. At a house that is burning and on fire and and he is screaming and beating at the walls and it is very obviously the house where the climax takes place yeah and 
I am thinking that there was a sequence in which Raquel and Oleg died in that house. And they basically changed it at the end to try and make sense. And the only shot they had of Fassbender like opening a door or doing anything at that house that would make sense. And maybe not even at that house was some kind of garage door. Just at some point. (laughs) Because he had to open it and have some kind of look of relief on his face. That's what they needed. And so they're like, this is what we got. It's so awkward (laughs) what if what if the original scene was actually him opening up a subaru hatchback and there's just beer inside and that's all he's looking at it's like oh alcohol thank god you're still here for me and then the the last shot of the movie is like some kind of is it a self-help group is that what it's supposed to be um he's with the the popos and they're handing out new cases it's new case day Oh, that's and right. yeah. and he has a he has a special finger now. That's his finger's right. been reattached, and he's finger. got the he's got the thing. Um, so he's he's been scarred forever by this whatever it was. Uh, and he's a cop again. He's a good cop. Now. He's a good cop now because he's drinking coffee and not booze. He's off the sauce. Uh, <laughs> that's right. He's finally decided to put down the sauce. Uh, and he takes it. So, I mean, you could tell that somebody had in mind to do more of these. Because, again, I, I think Nesbo's got like 12 of these books. But that that ain't happening. Oh, my gosh. That ain't happening. No. but yeah, I, I don't really attached. want it to happen. <laughs> so, I mean, this, you know, this is a super problematic movie. Like, this is a movie that on a fundamental level is is broken. And again, it is fascinating to watch because you just don't see this very often, right? Where it's it's not a failure of vision necessarily. It's not a failure of story even. It's a failure of execution on a colossal scale, right? Where all of the pieces for this to be a good movie, save for some, are present. But they have been so completely destroyed in the distru- in the in the process of making this movie that it's it's now indistinguishable as a film and it's it's crazy but at the same time at the core there's still some interesting stuff going on here enough that you know if you're just sort of passively watching without really asking questions you can sort of drift your way through this and still be okay right sort of like the 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 quote that uh, we pulled at the beginning, you know, it's fine, you know, like it's serviceable, it's watchable, but only because somebody in the editing room was able to weave together something even remotely coherent from something that was completely... Somebody earned their paycheck. Yeah, some editor somewhere like really did assemble this thing. You know, we always we always hear stories about movies being, you know, your movie's basically made in the edit, right? Like so many people, um, you know, George Lucas has never won an Oscar, but his wife did mm. because she's the one who edited Star Wars into yeah. a serviceable, into an actual film from the, the science fiction gobbledygook that George Lucas originally tried to put out there. And And I think that's kind of what's happened here is like an editor has tried to take something completely devoid of of any complete coherence and just make something that works out of it um 
you know, honestly, I don't, I don't even think, I think the final shot of them collecting their, their cases, that's a reshoot. They didn't have that. Probably. Cause it's in a completely different space. It's not. The lighting's most, real weird. The lighting's different. Michael Fassbender's hair is completely different. Like they, they knew they needed some kind of ending tag for, you know, Harry, you know, the further adventures of Harry Holt. <laughs> and, and they're like well you know get six people we haven't seen in the movie before and michael fassbender and let's let's do this and it's just it, again it's it's rare to see a film in this kind of shape get released theatrically and and, and still have any kind of marketing and, and any kind of release i just want you to know that i i took screenshots of all of the snowmen in this movie because <laughs> i couldn't uh-huh. stop uh, so so I have those that I will periodically be sharing with you. <laughs> oh, please. That's wonderful. Uh, we'll have to try and isolate one of the, the snowman stings. Uh, just kind of share that back. Like, <laughs> That's so perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, we could certainly spend some more time talking about this, but I, I think we can kind of move to our, our final phase here because we've probably already given this movie far more time and credit than it deserves. Uh, but let's let's talk about the one thing because this is a movie where I think our our the one thing might actually there are some things that could have been done to do this but but what's one thing that you think could have rescued the snowman? Well, it, it's obvious to say editing, but mm. I'll be more specific about editing. I think. I think you could still have a much more watchable film if they trimmed away some of the subplots or maybe didn't spend as much time on them. Like, you know, J.K. Simmons, I love him, but I didn't I didn't really understand what that was supposed to be doing in the film. And the um, movie doesn't either. I mean, yeah, the movie the, doesn't get it either. Thing. So I feel like it would have been a not necessarily better film overall, but it would have been a more understandable film. It would have been a more relatable film if it had removed at least one of those subplots. And I would vote for J.K. Simmons just just get rid of that altogether and focus on the the snowman killer himself and, and sort of try to build some tension that leads up to what I felt was a really interesting climax, but just a really undeserved climax because it didn't there was nothing that got us there. Right. Um, I, I'm definitely with you on the J.K. Simmons subplot. Uh, like, is it a... I kind of understand the Rafto stuff. Just to show that he had outsmarted another detective in the past. But the J.K. Simmons subplot, all it really serves to do is make Rebecca Ferguson look stupid. Because she's completely, she's so fixated on this this guy being the killer, being responsible for the death of this this woman nine years ago, that she can't she can't see what's happening, and she can't see what's what's coming for her. You know, I mean, does the guy deserve to go down? Totally, right? He, he ran this prostitution ring, like you know. So I, I would kind of understand if she was driven towards that but she still thinks he's responsible and involved in this way that he's not. And so there's, there's just a lot of like stuff left either left on the cutting room floor, or it just doesn't ever pan out in the film in a satisfying way. 
Yeah. Uh, I think for me, a lot of it really has to do with how Harry unspools the mystery. Because it's, we basically get like an hour and a half of, of very little to nothing happening with the mystery itself. <laughs> They're not questioning people. They're not talking to people. That popcorn song plays a couple times, though. <laughs> it, does. it does. We do get to hear that beautiful, beautiful human music. And and I just, I'm, I'm constantly and thoroughly surprised at how the film fails at what could be, or perhaps even what should be, the most simple thing that it does, which is lead us on the breadcrumb trail that takes us to the solving of the mystery. But really, all of that is packed into the last you know, 20, 25 minutes as he, he sort of puts together a couple of pieces about the, the Rafto case and then eventually you know, going back to the first case, the first snowfall, and then putting it together that Matthias you know, was, was somehow involved in their treatment. That's how he found out about it. But it's just so haphazard, right? There's, there's really no drive or skill from Harry that makes it possible. It's just him sort of fumbling around until he happens to trip over the right answer at the last minute. And the and there's as a result there's no there's no motivation of the killer to protect or defend themselves that makes sense. And so all of the actions that the killer takes in the last, you know, chunk of the movie, there's no reason for them to do any of that stuff. Because the police are no closer to catching him than they were at the beginning of the film. And so that's the, the narrative piece for me. It's like, if you're going to tell a mystery story, especially one around the events of a serial killer, you've got to have that stuff lined out. Because if you don't, your protagonist ends up looking like an idiot, which he does. <clears throat> your, your co-protagonist ends up looking like an idiot, which she does. And your killer ends up looking like an idiot, which he does. Because he makes all these decisions at the end that force the reveal of who he is when he could have just kept going on. And I guess you could argue that he wanted to be caught, that this was some kind of cat and mouse game with Harry. Eh, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's real thin. Yeah. And and as a result, it, it it's not satisfying when he dies, right? There's nothing. There, there's no satisfaction in the solving of the case because nobody really feels like they did anything. It just kind of, un, it just unspooled. And he happened to be paying attention. So for me, it's that. It's just getting those beats down. Because, you know, a lot of people were really unsatisfied by the Kenneth Branagh uh, murder on the Orient Express, which I'll be more than happy to say that the Albert Finney version from the 70s is perfectly adequate. Like, there's right. no reason, you know, if you want to watch that movie and be perfectly satisfied with it, by all means. You know, it's, it, Poirot has been done to death at this point. So you can find, you can pick your version of it. But one of the things that I think Branagh did a very good job of is taking a very well-known story and sort of setting those pieces up and then executing pretty flawlessly as the mystery gets unspooled and revealed. You know, even sort of leading, you know, at the end of that movie, Branagh has everybody out, uh, you know, they come out of the train and they set them up in the tunnel and it's straight up the last temptation of Christ, or not the last, the last supper, right? Like they're set up in that pose and then he begins to like delve into the this is what's going on. And it's just a nice scene. It's, it's satisfying. It's cathartic as you see the, the brilliant detective assemble the pieces and figure it out. You know, and this movie just does not have that mm -hmm. at all. 
Um, you know, I, I think it's, if it had had that at the end and that propulsion to take us to the end of the story, I think most audiences probably would have forgiven the fumbling for the first 90 minutes. I really do. Because in a mystery, that's what you're going to hold on to is how everything unfolded. You know, you'll, you'll forgive the missteps of acts one and two if act three really works in a mystery. And this one, it does not <laughs> at all. <laughs> all right. So that's, that's our one thing. But here we come to, we'll be honest, dear listener, a lot of the movies we've talked about up until this point were failures, but they're failures that we have an intense affection for, that we, we already kind of love and we love talking about. This one, not so much, which is kind of why I wanted to do it. Because I think this is, is the first one that was a failure on many, many levels. But the question is, is there some kernel of something hidden in there that still makes me want to buy it? So what do you think? What's your recommendation and percentage score for The Snowman? I would give this... <clears throat> hmm. I know. I would give this a 65. This is a, this is a D. This mm. isn't the worst movie I've ever seen, but it's not a good movie. Um, yeah. However, I do see a good movie somewhere in here. Um, I think that if they had been able to film the rest of it as they wanted to, um, we may have gotten some of those more important kind of glue together scenes that we didn't get. Um I think that this is an interesting watch for somebody who is a fan of mystery and, and thriller films just because there are so many fabulous examples of mystery films, of psychological thrillers, of, you know, serial killer movies. It's not a bad idea to branch out and look at one that is not successful. So... If you go into it with the mindset, this is not a successful film, and look at it as, you know, where could they have enriched this story? Where could they have um, made this work on film? I think it's always a good exercise for someone who's just interested in film um, to watch those unsuccessful attempts. So in that regard, it is a recommend. <laughs> However, if you want to watch a movie to enjoy a movie... No. Yeah. If you want to see some very moody-looking snowmen, yes. <laughs> and if yeah. you like human music. <laughs> if, you, if you really enjoy human music. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm very much in the same place with this. I'm going to put it just a little bit higher because, again, I've watched this movie four times, uh, maybe five with the, you know, sort of, going through it this week when I've had time and I, I find it incredibly watchable for some reason. Uh, maybe it's the slow motion, watch the train wreck happen. Maybe it's just Michael Fassbender being Michael Fassbender and being enough to sort of hold my attention. Um, but there, there is something oddly magnetic about it. Um, you know, I, I think you're absolutely correct. If you enjoy, you know, the serial killer genre, right? The seven genre. This movie 
is basically going to to show you how to do that wrong yeah and how to how to get that wrong in in a similar way and i know we talked about this a little bit before we started recording uh like the girl on the train got the yeah. the 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 sort of boy who cried wolf story wrong and, and screwed it up um you know it's not a terrible film by any stretch just like this but it's a film that fundamentally has such strong flaws that it barely holds together especially in the, in the at the end um and, and i think this falls into that same vein although you know girl with the train didn't have the, the major problems that this one does but I think that there's there's some lessons to be learned here. And at the core of it, again, if you can just kind of passively follow along, if you're not actively asking questions that the film has no answers for, like why do characters do things, who are, who's being killed, like Chloe Sevigny, right? Like, so was she in a relationship with Matthias? Because she's on the phone with a guy and says, hey, I don't want to see you anymore. And then she gets killed. Was, was who Matthias was that? The- was Matthias the guy? And then he, she aborted his baby? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, so I, he, I still don't know. <laughs> or was it just another guy, like Tomas or something, and Matthias just knew because he had been involved in, in her infertility stuff too or, or something? And so he, like, again, you, you the moment you start trying to tug on those threads, this movie completely falls apart every time and in every place right there's nowhere where it holds together but if you can just sort of passively watch it and sort of give it a chance you'll be mildly entertained just by the the forces at play within it but it is it is a fundamentally broken story in 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 filmmaking terms there's the pieces of the story required to make this movie are not here and they did the best they could. They ADR'd a lot of dialogue. We had a lot of shots of Michael Fassbender from behind, so they could just have him say whatever he wanted. But it it doesn't work in the way that it should. And and that in and of itself is fascinating to me. So I'm gonna put this at about a seventy for me. It's it's a it's maybe even a sixty nine, bro. Right? <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. <laughs> and because it's it's just right there it's it's on the verge of being a good or at least halfway decent movie but it is it is it is busted in too many places to fit that bill but i would still recommend hunting it down uh, if you can find it to watch it i, I think it's well worth it uh, it's a it's two hours of your life that you may not love but you'll never forget it i'll tell you, you will that. come away with feelings of some type yeah i mean just those creepy little snowmen with all those snowmen stingers over the top of them is enough, right? I mean, that'll get a, it gets a laugh out of me every time now. Like, I, I can't help, but just because I know the movie wants me to be terrified, and I'm just not. It's, it's a great. snowman. It's a snowman. All right, so The Snowman, 2017, a modern, decently budgeted serial killer film based on a best-selling novel that is an absolute train wreck of epic proportions um that i'm really just not sure how it happened and and that's that's what makes it so fascinating but like i said it's a recommend for me go ahead and find it uh you'll you'll love it for all the wrong (laughs) reasons just like us 
All right. So where can we be? Uh, where can we find you on social media, Kate? I am at Baskinator on Twitter. That is the best place to find me. Very nice. I am at T Baskin on Twitter as well. And then, of course, if you want to contact us just in general, you can get a hold of us at FPeace Theater at Twitter uh, or on Twitter and FillYourPiece at gmail.com if you need anything. All right. Uh, so we're going to call it good on the snowman. Our first truly back and forth is it a failure is it a failure piece uh, uh film but we'll be uh, i'm sure we'll have many more before we're done but uh remember we may not love the snowman but we sure love you and we appreciate you listening and you can never truly be a failure if you're loved so you have a great week and we will see you next time bye bye